can you uh, grab me a Olympus bread real quick? I'm going to go uh, ask for directions up here because okay. I feel like we've been just driving around mm -hmm. endlessly for a few chapters. We still have about like 1,500 miles left to go. So I'm, gonna, I'm thinking some like salted pork from Isengard, a little rabbit and stew. Could you grab me one of those green dragon energy beers? So I can like keep driving through the long night. Yep. Um, maybe you want to like grab a map or something. Yeah, I'll, I'll see what the. Oh, this is a. <laughs> these maps all hand drawn. That's incredible. Ooh, that is really expensive. Well, excuse me, sir, clerk, clerk. Could you circle here on this map uh, the the least congested route to Mordor? Oh, okay. Swampy. Oh, well. You know what actually would work better? Could we just simply walk? Can you just walk into Mordor? He's, sh he's shaking his head. Oh, oh well. <laughs> uh, Ooh, a Blackgate bumper sticker. Oh, hell yeah. This is going to look great on our... What are we driving? Well, I have this Prius that we rented, so it's still that. Thank God we're being energy conscious here at the end of all things. <laughs> okay, well, I think we should head back out because it's really important that we find ourselves on this trip. Uh, before we go, I'm going to slam this green dragon energy beer. Oh, what's that? Oh, you want to see my ID? Hmm. Okay, well, uh, let me get that out. I had to laminate it because it's one-of-a-kind hand-drawn parchment with uh, special inks from the Shire. But uh, here it is. It says, uh, hello. I'm Caitlin Kadju. I'm an animator, an illustrator, and of legal age to drink Middle Earth beer. And I'm Ira Marks. I write and draw comics, and I am purchasing some mushrooms from the Shire, which I guess he wants to see my ID for that as well. Yeah, those are a special, those are a very magical kind of mushroom that is going to come in real handy for this film. This is our, uh, podcast road trip about cartoons where two lifelong artists and fans talk about the mysterious and magical in middle earth process of bringing good cartoon stories to life you guessed it in today's episode our rings are bringing all the lords to the yard with ralph bakshi's <laughs> lord of the rings welcome to cartoon feelings Would you call this a, are we doing another sequel? Are we back in sequel land? Are we? I don't know. Are we? It doesn't feel like a sequel. I mean, it's just, it's just a new thing, right? Kind of. Is it? <laughs> this isn't helpful <laughs> at all. Talk more about that. Okay. If you have a completely new protagonist who has a relation to your previous protagonist, you're still in the same world. You've got a couple of the same characters, but, but completely different goals. Is it a sequel? I don't think so. I don't <laughs> think it is. But it's not a new thing either. So what is that? Yeah, I don't know. What the hell is Lord of the Rings? So I will say, so here's a book example that none of the viewing audience, well, maybe the listening audience will know this. I don't know. But some of my favorite books growing up, we've talked about this briefly before, was the Old Kingdom trilogy by Garth Nix that started with Sabriel. Mm -hmm. But then the second book 
is Lyriel, and Lyriel is the main character, and she wasn't in the first one. There's like a time skip. So the first book is about Sabriel, and then the second book is about Lyriel, and there's like a clear time skip, and Sabriel just like barely shows up in the first one. And then in the third one, it's still mainly about Lyriel, and Sabriel shows up a little bit more. So, but that's a trilogy. But if you like picked up Sabriel and you loved it, and you thought it was so good, and then you went to the second one, you might be like, wait, this is like literally not about anything from the first book exactly. So like, what is that? Yeah, it's a trilogy, but is that a sequel to the first one? And what does that mean? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I guess it really comes down to just marketing because I would say like Speaker of the Dead is, a, a, it's a stretch to call it a sequel to Ender's Game because it's set like way far in the future and the characters all grown up and the story is just totally different. But I think you could probably buy them as a collection and it's a series. Right. So I think maybe it's just part of the ser- the Middle Earth series. I like, can we call it a cycle? Like that was one of the, okay. like um, Ursula K. Le Guin. I remember the name of it, but it's like the Hainish cycle. Right. That yeah. It's like, and like, it'll be totally different planets and like different time periods and stuff. But like there was enough like threading. It's like set in the same universe to like bind those together. And I like the idea that it's a, a cycle. Okay. So... I don't think this has ever been said before, but this we're uh, talking about the Middle Earth cycle. Yes, today. <laughs> by <laughs> Ursula K. Le Guin, Tolkien. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, before we get into the movie of the week, I think we need to stop by the 21st annual Rutherford County Fair. All right, so today we're swinging by the uh, Middle Earth Real Estate Development Expo. And uh, there's, yes, <laughs> there's a little excellent. sign right on the front. You want, to read the, you want to read the sign before we go inside? This is an event to bring together top commercial and residential real estate professionals from across the lands of Middle Earth for a day of networking, panel discussions, and exhibiting. Yeah, I brought my gold pieces to the right place. Or whatever money. I don't know <laughs> what they use. So there's a bunch of little booths, I guess, with um, Middle Earth figures dressed in khakis and embroidered polo shirts, probably, you know, representing different probably. opportunities <laughs> across the land. So I, I thought we would just... polo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I thought what we do to just kind of, you know, warm things up today, we'd walk around the expo. Uh, we took a look at and we take a look at some opportunities to purchase some real estate, maybe, uh, you know, put together a housing development plan or something. This is all that I've ever wanted. Yeah, I think this is truly the end goal of any artistic endeavor. The 21st <laughs> annual Rutherford County Fair, can I just say, has truly been like a parade of dreams for me. Like every single time I'm like, this is everything I've ever wanted. <laughs> and we, we haven't even headed to the food booths yet. I mean, oh, that's so true. <laughs> we're just getting started. Unicorn first, food booth afterwards. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So maybe we're carrying some popcorn with us at this moment, but we're Elvin. What's the, what's the Elvin bread? The crackers? Oh, Lembus bread? Lembus corn? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have that. <laughs> so good. You only need one kernel. The first booth we're coming across is some land in Lothlorien, which I guess I didn't know. Now, we're going to get into some, some Middle Earth lore here. Lothlorien, also known as the Land of Blossoming Dreaming. That's nice. Land of the Valley of Singing Gold. Dope. And just Land of Gold if you don't have enough time to 
Explain. <laughs> That's fair. Real estate. It's all. It's quick, snappy. Land of gold. We we can do we are we assuming people don't know anything about Lord of the Rings? We got to explain. Like Lothlorien is the Wood Elves. It's their kingdom. Yeah, it's the place with the really, 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 really tall, really tall trees east of the Misty Mountains. Right, east of the Misty Mountains. And um, this is where Galadriel, or Kate Blanchett, if you would. They are one and the same. <laughs> yeah. So uh, now for me, Lothlorien is appealing because it's the woods. I like the woods. But it's also extremely creepy and mysterious is my read on this place. I'm not sure if I'm investing in land here. I almost would say that you don't. This is the place that you're walking by, the real estate place that you can look, but you can't afford it and everyone knows it. I think that this is, yeah, like this is like the rich people development and they're like, they look at your raggedy tunic or whatever and they're like, there's no way. And they're right. Like I can't afford development to this caliber. Well, I'm just like imagining kind of a Beverly Hills gated community. Is that yeah. the sort of the market we're looking at here? Yes. I think that seems fair. And like, I don't know that I would describe it as creepy, but I do feel like you, we don't belong. Like when I'm watching Lord of the Rings, I'm immersing myself in the narrative. That place seems too good for me. And I think yeah. rel- somewhat highly of myself like i feel like i deserve like a nice cozy hole in the ground or whatever but like lothlorien does seem a little bit beyond my reach much like galadriel yeah galadriel i'd say is a figure that almost fits in like the unicorn category the these elves are particularly yeah they're a little detached yeah life and death just means something different to them like the struggles of a, a small hobbit or even a man or a dwarf or whatever just seem they 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 might not even shrug it off like you don't even get a shrug like they're just you're not <laughs> well, even catching there. They definitely didn't seem very welcoming to most people. Yeah. Um, but I guess if you were, I don't know, I'd go to a spa weekend here. So if maybe there was like a lodge, a giant mm-hmm. tree lodge, I'd stay. Oh yeah, like I would definitely jump at the chance to go and hang. I just would like know that I would not be allowed to overstay my welcome. <laughs> No. It is not for the likes of you and I. (laughs) That's true. Okay. Well, speaking of elves, of course, the next booth in our journey here is Rivendell. A more notable, I'd say, this is like maybe the New York City of elven kingdoms. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I do agree. It's like a crossroads for for everybody. Everybody's, you know, they're building fellowships. They're starting businesses here. This this is where people meet. (laughs) Yeah, they are. It's a wash in song frequently. Like it seems like the elves here. So in Lothlorien, they also sing, I guess, but it seems more like funereal and like weird and mysterious and you don't really know where it's coming from. And then in Rivendell, apparently people are just like, we love it here. La 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 la. Everything is great. We love it here. We live here. Yeah. And this is a song about it. And that is an energy that I can get behind. Yeah, they seem to be more networked with the the realms of man also. They're, you know, they're working together. So that's, you know, that's a good feeling. That's true. Elrond does seem more too, like, accessible and, like, he's snooty, but, like, not, um, I don't know, exclusionary, I guess. 
Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like maybe he would be a little casually rude to me, but I don't feel like he would be like, get out of my face. Yeah, he seems quicker to come to your aid. He feels like he's he's part of part of this um, middle age more so yeah. than um, Galadriel feels just a, a little more separated. She's a little outside of it, even though, you know, I mean. She's a little bit more like angel tier, which is weird, but like a little bit more like heavenly. And then Elrond just seems like a very fancy person. <laughs> so if you're living in Rivendale, like is are these condos? What What's the residence you would take up in a Rivendale, do you think? Um, well, okay, we do get sort of a glimpse of this where Bilbo's staying in the first movie. By the way, everyone, I'm just going to be filtering all of these through the lens of the Peter Jackson movies, whatever. I'm sorry. Um, but it's really cool. It's like mostly open, like they're nice, like spaces, but then they're very open where it's not even windows. It's just like big openings to the outside with like beautiful overlooks down to the other levels. And that is really cool. And I like it a lot. So something like that, maybe it's like a like a breezy apartment. I guess it never rains here. Well, I hope not. I mean, breezy worries me. I mean, what you sit down to draw? What do, you, do I have like paperweights on everything? Yes. Okay. Leaves. <laughs> I will say really, really quickly, you just reminded me that in Oklahoma City, where I was born and raised, there is a neighborhood called Rivendell, and all of the streets are things from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so you can get like a, a kind of a McMansion-y looking property there. It's like Lorian Way and like really? Endor Circle. <laughs> these aren't trademarked? You, you I, can just use these names? I guess not. I remember driving through it once as a kid just because it was like such a curiosity to us. There's absolutely nothing visually special about it whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But it does exist. It even has kind of like a vaguely elvish. It's one of those like kind of like semi-gated neighborhoods, I guess, with like the brick sign at the front with the name on it. And it's like elveny looking. I don't know. So if you're in Oklahoma City and you're a big nerd and you got a few hundred K to throw around, this is where you want to be looking. Uh, yeah. So it's like somebody that has one place in um, the Disney city of Celebration, Florida, <laughs> and then their second home is Rivendell. Yeah, this is your normal, your normie home at Rivendell. <laughs> okay, just living the fantasy dream all around. It's really beautiful. Okay, so we're, we're, we're looking at some budget properties here in the Dead Marshes at the next table. A lot more in our price range at this time, I think. <laughs> so true. <laughs> A vast swamp. <laughs> yeah, the Dead Marshes, I see. If I could just skip ahead. The Dead Marshes, which I'm going to say hard pass on these because I know they full of dead people. That's the whole situation. Probably smells like terrible butt. Terrible butt. Yeah, it probably does. <laughs> right. We know that the, the War of the Last Great Alliance happened here. So everybody's just kind of lingering under the water. Yeah, and they're spooky. They're haunted also. Like, it's not even just like, oh, there's people down there. Like, it is actively haunted. And you have to even know where to step. Like, you can't build a foundation here. No. What are you going to do? Tear out the marshes? I guess you could tear out the marshes. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you can drain a swamp. You could build it up. You know, speaking of Disney, I mean. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) That's swampland. We could build a theme park here. Oh, yeah, totally. That's exactly what you do with the dead marshes. You, You put a theme park here. Now, oh, also, well, this was tidy. I can kind of picture myself retiring and 
you know, getting into metal detecting. I can picture that too for you. You know, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Particularly here. I mean, there's just going to be all kinds of, you know, there's all kinds of stuff under the surface here. Yeah, there's some juicy probably. Were elves involved? You could you could scoop up some hot mithril leavings here probably. I never thought. Uh, yeah, I mean, don't tell anybody. It's going to be really foul though. Like it's going to be fucking gross. Yeah, it's like 3000 years of of haunted <laughs> haunted armor here. Yeah, you'd have to have like really good insurance. I don't know, a lot can go wrong. The best thing you could probably do. Yeah, one theme park. Second, Highway to Mordor, I guess, because it's kind of a straight <laughs> shot to the Black Gate. Well, that's true. Yeah, we could really streamline this. You see the effort that Frodo and Sam have to go through to get across the Dead Marshes. We could just streamline all of that, put up a toll road. Toll, yep, tolls, tolls. Make a ton of Tolkien. <laughs> <laughs> Is <God>. this bad? <laughs> Has everybody stopped listening? <laughs> nope, I'm going to, uh, might put an echo effect on that, I think. Mm, my best slash worst joke. Okay, so we'll set up a meeting with the Dead Marsh folks. And next, we have the ever popular, ever musty Mines of Moria, or Casa Doom, if you would. I absolutely will. Thank you. Um, Is this pre or post Balrog? <laughs> post. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I guess it really changes <laughs> the appeal. <laughs> it absolutely does. The property values were really high, and then the Balrog showed up plummeting super low. I guess when the Bal- I don't know. We don't know what happens to Moria after the Balrog situation. Could uh, be yeah, fine. I mean, there's, there's not... Right, that's true. You could renovate the whole place. Let's say after the Balrog. I say okay. we get in there, power wash those walls. Oh, yeah. Get the last of the orcs out there, the goblins. Yeah. But honestly, like, it was... Probably, like, that's a flip opportunity if I've ever seen one. Like, Great Bones, mm, it's yeah. just ha- just like in desperate need of some TLC. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and we need a rebrand, too, because we can't, like, call it the Black Chasm anymore, I think. No. It wouldn't be cause of doom. It would be like, what's the opposite of doom? Although I know it's a different kind of doom, but whatever. Yeah. Cause odd hope. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds even more suspicious, actually. <laughs> no, I don't think any of us will be going there. Thanks. But I do. Th- it's a lot of room in there. You could also like split it up into about 10 million different apartments. Yeah. So, you know, if we were keeping with the theme here, we could we could have like seven neighborhoods for the seven uh, dwarf fathers. I don't remember their names, <laughs> but I'm Ballin, Ballin, Dwallin, et cetera. <laughs> the other ones as well. Yeah. Owen Glowen. I could, if pressed, I could name all these guys, but I simply won't. Also, there could be more mithril down there. Yep, there's great mining opportunities. Uh, you know, we could set up a venue. I feel like a lot of a lot of metal bands would happily come through here. Dope, so dope. Okay, yeah, this is a great investment because, like, obviously after the Balrog, the price would be really low, but. Just the chance that we could find a little bit of mithril down there would really make the whole endeavor worth it. Yeah, totally. And I just want to close this out by saying I did have a joke about the acoustics of the space when I brought up the music venue thing, but that's fine. We can move on. You could tell the joke. Nope, it's over. <laughs> okay. Okay. Back of, uh, out from the mines. I guess we're passing that 
that lake with that tentacled creature. Oh, yeah. Oh, say friend and enter. That's it's kind of like, you know, I guess it's the it's the friendly neighborhood, right? But it's also a gated community. It's like the most welcoming gated community I've ever yeah. seen. Extremely like passive aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just say the code and enter. There is an HOA. All right, on to the plains, uh, Rohan. This is where I would live. Yeah, I mean, that's it's all. The, it's the easiest. The, this is like Middle America. I mean, actually, it probably looks a lot like Oklahoma, maybe. I really don't think I know what Oklahoma looks like. <laughs> Sorry. It can be really pretty and also like incredibly ugly and boring. Yeah. It really but, depends. But would you describe it as rolling? Um, no. Flat. Yes. Like okay. nuclear level, just absolutely not a peep of hill. But I say that, though, but like my dad used to joke around that like where we lived was Rohan because I grew up on like a five acre farm and we had two horses, one of mm. whom was actually a white horse named Gandalf. So oh, it was beautiful. a very Lord of the Rings-esque setting. We had a like a sign hanging up at one point that was like very Rohani and like horsey. So that was I think my dad always called it Rohan Ranch. Is basically um, like where I we like grew that. up. <laughs> so I have a lot of affinity for it, even though I'm, I love horses and I think they're awesome, but I hate riding them and I'm terrified of riding them because they're really big <laughs> and fast and it hurts when they step on you or when you fall off. And I've fallen off so many horses in my time, but I'd still do it. I don't care. I don't have to ride them. Yeah. So one of my hands will do that. I don't know. One of my knights. Yeah, I mean, you can always hook up a cart. You don't have to be on the back. Still, though, they're very chaotic. Yeah. Chaotic neutral, though. Chaotic neutral, right. I mean, they mean well a lot of the time. But um, I do think this is like the most accessible and the most, you know, common man. Like, that's the energy of Rohan, right? All those dudes are kind of like, yeah, I might be a king, but I'm not like the king. Like, I'm not, you know, we're all kind of no, like. yeah, they're kind of. They're blue collar ish. The middle tier <laughs> of the world of men. Um, this is where they shoot the Budweiser commercials. <laughs> the Rohan Clydesdales. Yeah. And you have uh, whatever's left of Helm's Deep. <laughs> That's true. I don't true. know what you do with that. Turn it into like a mini golf course or something. I was going to say you could probably make that a pretty sweet vacation home, except like the land around it looks so barren. Yeah. I don't know. Like, it would be a great, like, um, base camp sort of, like, resort situation for maybe some... Because there's mountains right there, right? So you could do, like, some cave yeah. diving, because that's, you know, where all the, the villagers, like, squire away into the underground caves. So you could do some spelunking. You know, you could offer maybe skiing in the winter. It could be a ski resort. Ooh. Oh, yeah, definitely. Fantasy vacations yeah. are really appealing right now. Yeah, it's got an iconic look. I could see I could see the the poster. So, yeah, vacation destination for sure. Mm, so good. And I mean maybe Shadowfax is the mascot or something. We haven't talked about <sighs> Shadowfax, the best of all horses yet. So I just wanted to bring it Literally up. Literally king horse, very powerful. I like that you named your Middle Earth themed Horse Gandalf and not Shadowfax. <laughs> I do think that was my dad's call. I don't know. He has a strong affinity for Gandalf. And who whomst among us wouldn't? No, it rolls off the tongue better too. Shadowfax is a, a tough word. You you kind of want to abbreviate it instantly. Yeah, Shadowfax is like blah, blah, blah. Gandalf used to call him Ganny. And he was great. Oh. 
He passed Damn. away a few years ago. Oh. It's an old horse. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was thinking of what sound effect I could put there as a little tribute. but <laughs> Just get some um, Gandalf whistling from the when he whistles okay. the shadow effects. That will be really yeah. elegant. All right. We built a couple more locations. The obvious one is, is last, but a quick stop in another forest. This is Fanghorn Forest. No. Get out of there. You should not be no, in there. too dangerous. It's pissed. That forest is pissed. We all know that. You're not supposed to be in there. It could literally grab you and yell at you. Not doing it. Yeah, Leave that's true. It's, it's not a good <laughs> luck to mess with a place like that. A self-aware forest. And also you yeah. have like whatever's left of Isengard kind of just right outside there, which is just a bad vibe. Yeah, like, I, yeah, I, I don't want anything to do with Isengard. You even like, that's probably like some prime real estate. There probably is some good infrastructure there to recover. Don't want it. It's cursed. Um, oh, I mean, yeah. that land is ruined, I think, right? I mean, that. Yeah, it's pretty messed. They have raised that, yeah. Which is another sad thing. It's like, let the forest repopulate. Like, I don't want to mess with that. Like, in a normal forest, I don't want to tear it down, let alone a forest that actively does not want to be torn down and will come after you. <laughs> and I'm going to cut ahead because the, the spokesperson at this booth is actually an ent, and this is just a really long conversation just to say no. <laughs> Taking so, forever. <laughs> we're going to just like cut ahead. <laughs> all right. And, and last but not least, <laughs> the most comfortable of all places. I think this might be either this is like, maybe this is a really fancy retirement community or something, but the Shire. Yes. Northwest. The Northwest Shire of Middle-earth, specifically. I will have it. I will have it at once. Round doors for everybody. Yeah, there's nothing I've wanted more than this. I've always found it very appealing. Like the interiors of any Hobbit hole I've ever seen in film or in illustration, extremely appealing. Now, wait, hold on. You've actually been, haven't you been to the, the iconic Hobbit hole? Yes, I have. Although I will say here that there are no interiors <laughs> Right, that's sad. It's all fake. So you can't actually go into any Hobbit hole, but I did have the pleasure with my dad surprising absolutely no one who's listened to this podcast whatsoever. Um, we went to New Zealand a few years ago and we went to the Hobbiton set and it was so nice. It was amazing. Yeah. I recommend it. And there's a part where you can like, I will say like it's very touristy and they do rush you through there pretty quick. It's also super awesome. And I definitely recommend going if you happen to be in New Zealand and are as big a nerd about this as we are. But the the hobbit hole that you can kind of like stop at and like get a picture if you want is like covered in art supplies. <laughs> like there's like a table outside with like a painter's palette and stuff. And I was like, this is my hole. It had a red door and everything. That hole was made for me. But there's nothing inside them. Like I said, like it's just you can you can go in ish theoretically and there's like a couple feet of space back there but like any interiors were like green screened in i'm glad you mentioned that there was art supply set up there because when i think of this space i mean this is where you want to do an art residency oh my god it just has that enriching feel right yes i will say too like it's obscenely beautiful there and everybody knows that if you've obsessively watched all the dvd extras of the lord of the rings movies you know that like new zealand is freaking gorgeous but like it's breathtaking where they built the hobbit set and it's still like an active sheep farm so that part is kind of like you have to ride a bus to it um and so you go a ways in there but at the part where you're kind of like waiting your turn to get on that bus 
um, sort of like gift shoppy sort of area, you can see like just hundreds and hundreds of sheep getting like driven across the fields, like these just fluffy white sheep. And it like, it just feels fake. Like it does not feel real. It was so great. I'm moving to New Zealand. Bye. Yeah. This episode's sponsored by New Zealand. <laughs> so it smells good there. I don't know. I, I think it's, I mean, it was probably inevitable if we were going to invest in any of these properties, it's, we're probably leaning towards the Shire, right? Yes. That's, that's the pace of life. And my dad always used to joke, my dad, my dad, he's going to come up a lot in this, I bet. Um, but he always used to joke with us that like, oh, like when we like grow up and like make it, we were kids, he's like, you have to build me a hobbit hole <laughs> to live in. So like retirement community is right, I think. And we were always like, yeah, we're totally going to do that. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know the logistics of building a hobbit hole. Um, my sister did go into architecture, so maybe she can figure that out. But if that was accessible, I like absolutely would. I bet the heating bill is like pretty chill. Also, I mean, you like got geothermal in there yeah. probably. Mm -hmm. It's a good way to live. Yeah, it, I bet it's a little Mormon-ish in that um, people help each other. You know, like if you don't know how to build your own hobbit hole, there's a whole community that's going to kind of rally for a month and, you know, just do it all in one go. And then, Like you burrow. Know, yeah, exactly. Everybody just starts digging. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically burrow, but for small people. Yeah. And like your rite of passage is you carve your own door, I guess. Oh my God. What a fantasy ideal. Yeah. So that's it. If I could pick one, it would be the Shire probably first because I already lived on Rohan, I think. Well, we have all these brochures now, so I guess we can kind of look over them on our on our drive back. That's true. <laughs> okay. Invest. Say goodbye. Say goodbye to the uh, Rutherford County Fair for today. Um, I mean, there's not a lot we need to explain as we jump into the movie today. What happened was we watched The Hobbit by Rankin and Bass, and we're like, naturally, we will follow that up with uh, a shot of Return of the King, like a chaser, I guess, I'm making a drink analogy for some reason. Cocktails. But we could not, I mean, we like obscure stuff, but <laughs> the Return of the King does not seem to be available to anyone anywhere at any It's a time. lost film. It's a lost film. And I say that, I'm fairly sure that it is available um, on DVD. But who has the time to sit and wait for a DVD to show up and pay 15 bucks for this movie on DVD? No, it won't be happening. And it didn't happen. We didn't do it. And I mean, if it's not available on streaming, maybe it's as bad as we might imagine. I just don't, I, it's probably not good, right? Let's just say that. I'm sure it's not. I'm sure it's not. I will say I was disappointed that I didn't quite realize this. I guess that um, the Return of the King animation bled together in, with The Hobbit in my mind because I was expecting some songs, some iconic songs that I thought were in The Hobbit movie to show up and they didn't turns out they're in return of the king sad to miss out on that one of those was um where there's a whip there's a way iconic troll or like orc song or whatever classic i think there's a couple other good ones in there maybe i don't know and we won't know and you won't know no no one will know and uh there's a bit to dissect here before we get into like the story of the movie so if you didn't read the description we're talking about the 1978 ralph Bakshi, Lord of the Rings, as it's known. So it's based on, surprise, the epic fantasy series by Tolkien, 
J.R.R. himself. The cycle. So we're following The Hobbit, which came out in 37, 1937. Lord of the Rings written between the years of 37. He just kind of picked it right up, kept it going to 49. And then they're getting published from 54 to 55. So I'm pretty sure the books were kind of, those three were being written as all one arc. Like this story was just bleeding all over the place, but he managed to rally it into these three books, which were, you know, broken down with assistance from his editor and then named to appeal and like make sense to people that want to follow up The Hobbit with, with more story. And then the whole collection is, you know, The Lord of the Rings. So that's, that's the backstory to that. I believe too, he always was like kind of insistent that it was actually one big book. Yeah, it's all just one big thing, right? Yeah, it's just, I mean, who's going to, how do you wield such a book and sit down and read it? It's more about like the practicality of it. <laughs> yeah. And it, I mean, it makes sense. Like it's it's kind of an interesting thing that he became such a famous literary figure when he's really like thinks like a scholar and all levels. Like these books are kind of impenetrable unless you really want to know what's going on. Like they kind of read like a thesis on like this fantasy world. And that's why they're daunting. They're these massive volumes. It's a bit biblical. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like there's so much going in to it. And it's also not quite like structured for just like easy accessible flow. Nope. And it's like if you try to pick up the Bible and just like read it, like you're going to encounter some really wild stuff like very shortly that appears like, why am I reading this now? That's not the reaction I have with Lord of the Rings, but it is like there's just a lot of stuff that happens in a linear fashion <laughs> and it doesn't. You can't just look at that and be like, well, he should have excised like such and such chapter for flow or whatever. Like that's just not what these are about. No. Yeah. And that's maybe a stylistic trend of. Probably a lot of fantasy, particularly Tolkien fantasy, is the linearness, like just writing and going forward. Like, I think that's why when we get into the movie, it kind of just ends abruptly. <laughs> and you could, you know, you could pick it up like the story is not resolved. Like we can kind of come and go in these like interesting scenes, but they don't all like tie back in some satisfying like cinematic way. Like these stories just unravel across time and i i think that's really how we wrote them as far as i know yeah like there's something that's really happening like a history mm -hmm. with all the potential dryness even that that might entail so i want to talk a bit about the most famous retcon in <laughs> all of media the ring itself right so i just think this is a cool interesting story about about how this is done because it's something you know, you think about if you're a storyteller, it's like, oh, maybe if I want to build off of this, like, what is the foundation with which I can, like, propel this world I've created forward? In The Hobbit, you have a magic ring, which is lowercase magic ring. It's just a, a plot point. It's a cool fantasy artifact that helps, build, that helps Bilbo along his way. And that's it. But of course, when he finishes that book, it comes out and he's got the taste for, you know, kids lit. And he wants to tell more stories like this. He goes back and he finds an element that could open up the doors to like a bigger, more mature, longer tale. So I've got a Tolkien quote where he's <laughs> he's kind of like making a fantasy story within a fantasy story as he explains like where this idea came about. So it's kind of interesting. He says, if you wanted to go in from the end of The Hobbit, 
I think the ring would be your inevitable choice as the link. If then you wanted a larger tail, the ring would at once acquire a capital letter. And the Dark Lord, capital D-L, would immediately appear, as he did, unasked, on the hearth of Bag End as soon as I came to that point. So it's like, as he's talking, he's suddenly just like in Middle Earth explaining this as if he's like a <laughs> wizard that's come to your door. It's, it's kind of magical the way he, Isn't he? thinks. <laughs> so that's kind of like his explanation. And if you pick up early editions of The Hobbit, there's no evidence of, you know, where this would go. But later he goes back and he takes the riddle in the dark story. And what does he do? I think in like the forward or prologue to Lord of the Rings, he explains that Bilbo's recollection of the ring is not the truth because he was under the sway of the ring. So now going forward, we will know the truth of the ring. But just so you know, in The Hobbit, that's not the real ring, which is just some real like Marvel cinematic universe level (laughs) hand waving. (laughs) I talk it's rolling in his grave right now, but I mean... Calling a spade a spade. Okay, so that that's the story of the ring that we get in Lord of the Rings. Now, here we are, 1977. We've got the Rankin and Bass Hobbit. From the interviews I was reading, they knew that Ralph Bakshi was in production of this Lord of the Rings. So they were jumping right to Return of the King, and he was kind of like filling in this middle space, from what I've heard. What was their interaction? Like he was mad as mad that they were doing The Hobbit and The Return of the King. I just don't know like if they had communication at any point or if there was like, I don't know. I just don't know why there was beef. And I think it's probably something interesting there, but I don't know what it is. So Yeah, I think it's more, I don't know if they were actually communicating. It might just be more they were aware that each other were doing things. And Rankin and Bass have a reputation for more kid-friendly entertainment. And Ralph... Bakshi, Google him if you haven't seen any of his work. I would call this like stoner fantasy. It's like more mature. It's oh, more yeah. psychedelic. It's like iconic 70s fantasy. It's for grownups because it's kind of drug fueled or whatever. It's and the movie, and this movie doesn't read that way, but a lot of his work has that flavor. So it's just a different approach, right? This has a touch of weed smoke to it, to me, in my mind, this film. For sure. And I will say uh, beyond that, I guess the only thing is like he there was some quote that I'd read where he was talking about the the Rankin and Bass Hobbit. And he was like, it's trash, like rip off like and he just really hated it. And I do think it's at least interesting because whatever we have to say about the Bakshi Lord of the Rings going forward, he thought that he was kind of felt like he he thought it was sort of a sacred charge like Mm -hmm. The language that he used to talk about working on this project was very like, I'm respecting the genius's vision. I will not deviate. Um, He even like met with Tolkien's daughter to be like, I promise to you that like, I will not change anything. You know, I want to like meticulously craft Tolkien's vision. Whereas you have like Rankin and Bass and like, He's not wrong. As much as we love a, like whatever Rankin and Bass stuff that we've seen, it's like they were cheap. They were a cheap studio making cheap stuff. And I think that's, you know, why a lot of that stuff came out. And we would comment occasionally on our past episodes about like this feels made for TV or it feels a little bit like a like a TV show. And it was because of that. 
And like, that is just not how Bakshi was seeing this project at all. No, he was going big. He, I think he was going like Ben-Hur level big. Yeah. I was watching the doc. I think it's called Forging Through the Darkness. I was looking at a clip from it. And it's basically narrated by him, him explaining how heroic his journey was trying to get this film made. And I mean, it's long. It's like two hours and 15 minutes, which is pretty long for an animated feature. So like right there, extreme ambition, right? And he was describing shooting like the Helm's Deep fight in Madrid. And he had like 3,000 extras in costume and eight cameras set up. And he had like union people yelling at him. These people need breaks and everybody's stopping. And there's like language communication things. And it was like a real full on production. It's not just, you know, Disney style people like closed in rooms, drawing frantically and maybe bringing in some models every once in a while to have a point of reference. Like he was out there filming this whole thing, because if you don't know, this movie is all rotoscoped, which means to draw over actual footage. That's all the the whole thing is made like they I guess they got a taste for it. They did a scene or two and he was like, all right, let's just do the whole thing like this. It's working. Um, and whether you feel it's working is up to you as the viewer. But that was the choice they made. And I'm sure you saw it, too, because I'm pretty sure it's just in the Wikipedia page as well. But there's a quote from him, um, not specifically about this project, but about a few of his projects where he used rotoscoping that he kind of expressed some regret later about how it looks over time. Um, which I think is exactly right. Like, I do not think that it has aged favorably in any capacity. But it is interesting because I do wonder, too, if he, like, really felt like they were just on the verge of greatness making this. Which is interesting because, like, I think a lot of people haven't seen this movie. And apparently it, like, did well when it came out, but wasn't, like, it wasn't, like, rave reviews when it was released. And it certainly hasn't become anything like on par with the Peter Jackson movies, for example, like it's extremely overshadowed by those. It's not this enduring, um, widespread, like beloved thing, but it is interesting because I have to imagine this, like from the process stuff that I read about it, it really felt like Bakshi not only was incredibly passionate and felt like this was just like the opportunity of a lifetime, Mm -hmm. but maybe that is like, we're like breaking new ground. Like, I don't know. And then it's kind of weird to, to think about that from the perspective of like, this movie did not, (laughs) you know, like split open anybody's head by how like amazing it was. So yeah, I don't know. I haven't seen anything about how he felt about it's like long-term success. I don't know what year this documentary was from. It seems more contemporary because he, he looks quite a bit older, but one of his co-writers was saying they were, intent on making this a non-Disney style animation, even though like Disney was waning in that late seventies era. So I don't even know why you're like that worked up about comparing yourself to Disney at that point. It just doesn't seem like it's that relevant, but I don't know. Sometimes when it seems like if you're making something in re in a style that is reactionary to something else, it's just never going to go that well. Like just say it the way you want to say it. If it's influenced by something you like, just I mean, just embrace that. Don't like anti-Disney your movie just to do it. But I guess the goal was they wanted people to know this was adult and fantasy were a thing. Like this is a growing market. Adults come out and you can watch animation too. It's not just kids stuff. So I guess that's what they were really pushing. Joke's on them. We figured that out on our own. (laughs) And we love it. 
you know, I was thinking, I was trying to figure out what it is about rotoscoping that just is, I, I would call it boring. And I think it's like, let's say if it was a sound effect. So like, let's say a Disney bouncing ball goes like, boing, like you can hear the bend and stretch. You can hear the physics. Like it, That was it really bring, nice, by the way. <laughs> it brings a personality to it. Like rotoscoping is like, like mm-hmm. there's no rhythmic ebb and flow of it. It's just real human movement. Without those like congestions of, you know, like the the pull in and the push out. I guess it's just the squash and stretch is all I'm trying to say. It's missing that, which I think we just expect to be an aspect of animation. And you're they're just not really playing to that when you're just tracing figures. Well, and it yeah. stands out when they try to, because sometimes they cartoonify some of these characters. Yeah, sometimes you feel like, oh, they actually sat down and animated this. And then sometimes they did it. And it's really interesting. It actually, it's wild to watch this movie because from scene to scene and like shot to shot, it will just flow on the spectrum between completely animated to like, literally just a video of a person with like, some slight effect on top of it to make it look like weird and vibrant. Like it's very bizarre. But like, yeah, rotoscoping, it can be cool. I have seen times where it's cool. And like, I've done it on some of my projects, but you you tend to do it in a way where people can't tell that's what you're mm-hmm. doing. And that usually requires a lot more adjustment or that you're using it only in like really, really fleeting or like select moments. Because mm-hmm. what's weird about it, like the whole deal of like the 12 principles of animation, which I don't know if we've talked about before. But just a quick... No, we'll have to do an episode specifically, I think. Yeah, that would be really good. Well, I love that. Um, But just a quick recap, if somehow you're listening to this podcast and you don't know what the 12 principles of animation are, uh, they were basically just like these 12 sort of rules, if you will, of how to animate something to kind of enhance it and make it look good, according to Disney artists specifically. So it was stuff like... Um, anticipating a move. So if a character was going to jump up, you would have them crouch down first briefly and then jump up. And that was enough to kind of deceive you as the audience to be, to feel like it felt like real motion. And it's like heightened because it doesn't translate that well otherwise. And in real life, we have that, like we have anticipation. Like if you're going to punch somebody in real life, which I don't recommend, but if you were, you know, you might like wind back first and then like punch them. But with rotoscoping, you're just chasing after that very specific move and then just making it more rigid. Yeah. You're not, you need to do the opposite thing was kind of where the idea of the 12 principles of animation were like, you need to take what is like a normal human move to do that thing and push it even further so that audiences can see it. And then rotoscoping almost makes it worse than real life where you don't watch a movie of somebody punching somebody in the face and be like, well, that looks weird because it's like real life and it's what we're used to. Mm -hmm. But animation is a translation of that kind of stuff. It's like a translation of movement and that kind of thing. And so if you just like, well, it's like a, it's like a video, but we, we rotoscoped it. Another thing too, is like, there's no motion blur, which is already a problem in animation. And that's where you get stuff like smear frames, or you'll see a lot in like Looney Tunes cartoons and old cartoons where they would dry brush paint on top of a cell to make it look like uh, motion lines and little tricks like that to replicate motion blur to make it seem more natural. And if you're rotoscoping, 
a man is running and you rotoscope that, you're not going to get any of the motion blur that the human eye is naturally perceiving were you to see a man run down the street. Mm-hmm. You're just like completely eliminating an entire like part of our optical experience that makes us sense what the motion is. And so it is, it's very strange to even to see like a whole feature film where they didn't even try to include that in a lot of places. Yeah. And like creatively too, there's something about that process that I think doesn't let your brain enter into abstraction, which to me, that's like an emotional space with with creativity. When you bring abstraction in, you're trying to speak on like an emotional level. And when you're tracing, even if you're skilled in that work, just tracing something isn't going to lend itself to coming up with the idea of doing some of these smudges or any of these like beautiful, like Looney Tune techniques, like the language of cartoon just isn't going to come out of tracing. And also beyond the rotoscoping, I found the term for the the worst version of that, which is solarizing, which is where they just take (laughs) the footage and they blow it out. So it looks like line art. I mean, that's just getting lazy, I would say. And they were like in the documentary, they're talking about it like this innovative idea. I'm like, that is what didn't age well. That's what makes your movie Mm -hmm. look like a patchworky kind of like collage of of footage. Yeah. Sometimes it looks kind of cool, but like with when they do it with silhouettes, like it's kind of cool. But it doesn't add up to a coherent story. Well, right. Especially if you're mixing and matching it. And truly, you can have one scene that is just like Disney cells, like pure blocks of color and like inked outlines. And then the next exact frame is like, here are five human men in costume (laughs) with a thin veneer of animation on top. And it's like, "Mm, where am I? And I was watching this in the living room and Neil basically was just like, yikes, when he saw it, which is not probably the response that you want, like your casual bystander to have when they see your epic feature film is like, ooh, that doesn't look good. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. Sometimes it looks really cool in isolation. And that's what's kind of weird about it is there are like singular frames in this where I'm like, damn, that looks awesome. Like this could have been something really cool, but it's just so like chaotically applied. It feels like um, watching something from the early 2000s where the CGI just isn't up to the story they want to tell with it, where just something jumps out at you off the screen that's like, that dragon is just not actually in the scene right now. It's impossible. I'm just taken mm-hmm. out of the movie. Like some of this feels like that. So on one hand, you you can commend them for pushing to tell the Lord of the Rings story because, I mean, people... This is like, this book was like a, it was like a college phenomenon. Like kids wanted to take classes about Lord of the Rings. It's like, this is deep thinking stuff. This is how we like break down the universe and, and you know, the war and all all this stuff. Like, so it makes sense that he would want to make this because I think that's his audience, you know, is like thoughtful, you know, deep thinking, weird, abstract, like youth. And, you know, that's their adult market is I would think. So they're they're trying to do it, and I'm um, you know I I don't know what choice I would have made. It's actually kind of smart to be like, all right, we'll shoot the footage, and then we'll just if we need a an army, like how else would you animate an army? Yes, yeah, and that's um, something that Neil kind of brought up first. Actually, he's just like casually watching this with me, but I thought about it while I was watching this. Is it like? This was basically an impossible thing that they tried to do. So however they landed is kind of impressive. And apparently 
you know, people had been talking about making the Lord of the Rings into a movie for a while. The other scripts had been written and scrapped uh, and different filmmakers, you know, it had been shopped around to different people. And I think there's like Stanley Kubrick had seen it and said it was unfilmable, like quote unquote unfilmable. And I'm like, yeah, he's completely right. At this time, you could not film this movie. And even in like Peter Jackson's movies, there are times when it shows its age. I mean, it holds up remarkably well, but there are certainly times where it shows its age despite being incredibly innovative in so many ways. Like, I I don't think you could have done it before then, really. And yeah, even in animation, because that was another thing where people talked about like, should we do it live action? Should we do it this or that way? Whatever. And he was like, you can't do it in live action. So it has to be animated. And I, I'm sitting here in 2021 with like all the benefit of hindsight and not having to be involved in whatsoever. But it's like, he was right. You can't do it in live action, but you also couldn't do it in animation either. It's too ambitious. So it's like really spectacular that you went for it in the first place. But for sure, if this was like a Disney style feature and made in the exact same way as any other classic Disney movie, you'd have about three people on screen at any given time, <laughs> <Right>. potentially. <laughs> Yeah. Let alone like hordes of orcs chasing them through Moria or mm. any of that. It just, it's not possible. They don't, it can't be done in Disney way with any kind of budget. There's just no way. Something that um, what you were saying made me think of because we've been looking at a lot of adaptation and actually Peter S. Beagle of The Last Unicorn worked on this script. I, his name came up in the credits. So yeah, he was here. the guy, I guess there was this Chris Conkling, I think was the name of the guy that did two different attempts at the script before they were like, nah. And then they had Peter S. Beagle. And he is the one that pretty much did the script as has come out in this final version of the movie. But I like that as like another convenient little link back to our Rankin and Bass original <laughs> yeah. link that and, we were having. And under the, the kind of banner of adapting fantasy, I think it's it's always going to be the case where you're chasing something. There's always going to be an aspect of these stories that I think is better left unshown. Like there's certain things about when we get into the story, like uh, there's a Galadriel scene that I really love, but I almost don't like that I've had to look at that character saying those lines on the screen. And I'll talk more about it when we get there, but there's things like the Red Bull in the the last unicorn. They look cool, but there's also this like magical idea of what it is on the page that you almost would rather not have seen it because it's a little richer and more beautiful, like in your mind, because a lot of, at least for me, when I see an, an, a visual interpretation of something from a book, it wipes out my imagination in a yeah. way. I, I, I can't overpower like visual input, like Gandalf, is the Gandalf actually from this movie is like quite close. If you were to draw, if, if I were to draw an animated Gandalf, he would look like this character. My imagination is almost like not part of this conversation. It's like the things I've taken in. Um, so that's something I'm kind of like realizing with watching fantasy stories, stories adapted. There's, there's so much joy in imagining these things when you read them. It's kind of like a little bittersweet when they're explained to you on the screen. Yeah, that's why like I try really hard not to be like snooty about anything. I definitely am, but like I try not to be. 
But like one thing is that like I I don't ever want to be like, well, the movie sucks and the book is better, whatever. But in any case, I'm like, you should try to read the book first Mm -hmm. because you're just not going to be able to have the same experience after you've seen the movie. You just can't really. And I mean, I say that as somebody who has never managed to read all of the Lord of the Rings books. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the Peter Jackson movies were coming out at an age where they're just going to be incredibly, like, formative and, like, burned into my brain anyway. So, you know, what are we going to do about that? <laughs> but it's, yeah, like, it, it seeing something is different than reading it, and then it's always going to be there. You're always going to have that. Whereas, like, whatever your brain generates when you encounter the material for the first time is, like, literally uniquely yours. <laughs> yeah, there's kind of a collective experience of The Lord of the Rings, which is a lot more tied to the Peter Jackson movies now. But in that, if you think of it that way, like you can be glad these things exist because it's what brings us together to be able to talk about them a little easier, which is cool. I did want to say, I guess I should have mentioned this at the aesthetic point. This is literally a one sentence comment. I just think it's funny that this movie literally looks and smells like a velvet painting. Ooh, wait, <laughs> that's a thing you came up with or you read that? No, I came up with that because I could feel it and experience it while I was watching this. Not always, but there are times. I think it's like the heavy use of silhouette. Uh, and especially yeah, okay. with that s- solarization, I think, is that what it was called? The solarization of the movie yes. um, sequences at parts. But, for example, in the scene where the Nazgul are chasing Frodo across the plain... Uh, and he's like going to go to Rivendell, basically. Um, mm-hmm. There's this really kind of trippy, wild segment where uh, I expected like Frodo's on a horse. He's on the elf's horse and he's supposed to be like running away to Rivendell. And he's just not. I don't understand what's going on in this scene whatsoever. It's just kind of a weird dream scene. And we have like the Witch King, I guess, is like manipulating him mentally or whatever. It's a very strange moment, but it's very isolating. There's Frodo here on a horse. There's the Nazgul dude here on his horse. And the the landscape changes and it becomes very weird and colorful and like streaked with black paint. And like all the other characters like fall away. I don't know. It's very psychological, whatever. Um, and it just looks like a freaking velvet painting to me. It's like it's so I can smell the like dank scent on this part of the movie, like the the witch king is like this weird mushroom green color but it still manages to feel like fluorescent (laughs) and then everything else is like harsh blacks and um it's a very very rotoscoped it's like it might as well be live action footage in this section the horse is like spinning around and every time you see the black horse uh face the camera like the eyes and the mouth (laughs) are painted like bright red yeah. And it's just like, you could not be more 70s if it was just like beating you with a newspaper from 1978 or whatever. It's wild. Yes, yeah, so we, we've entered into like the kitsch of the animation world. Like this is like lowbrow, like art type of, that's, that's worth the category it fits in. Just right there with a the velvet painting. It's rough stuff. That's all. <laughs> Much like any rendition of The Lord of the Rings, well, I guess with like a little vignette about the rings, because as we all know, there's more than one. 
There were a bunch of them. But then there was just one. Well, there wasn't just one. The other ones were still around. But then uh, Sauron made the one ring to be the boss of everybody else. Uh, But he is defeated in a great inter-Middle Earth conflict. And Isildur takes the ring. He is a human man. And he is vulnerable to the ring's charms, as we all are. And (laughs) he is slain by orcs shortly thereafter. And the ring is lost to time for, oh, like 2,000 years. A long time. And a a hobbit-esque creature finds the ring. And it is taken from him by his companion, Smeagol, who we all know and love uh, later as Gollum. Uh, so he has the ring. Some hobbity adventurers ensue that we may or may not have gone over in a previous episode under the purview of a different studio. And decades after the fact, um, Bilbo Baggins, who is the hobbit that now has the magic ring from Gollum's hand. It's his birthday. He's super old. He wants to retire permanently away from the Shire. And he leaves his ring in the care of his nephew, Frodo, who I he has adopted uh, into his household as his heir. So this is how Frodo has the ring. And uh, after a good chunk of time, so 17 years later, Gandalf the wizard, a friend of the Baggins family, returns to the Shire to tell Frodo that that ring that he's had passed down his family for decades at this point is actually an evil magic ring. It is the one ring of Sauron from that little vignette at the beginning of the movie. And this means trouble. So Frodo needs to take that ring and get it out of the Shire. And this is where, as you're expecting, a quest ensues, uh, as any good fantasy story has. So Frodo sets off with a few of his friends and family, uh, Pippin, Marion, Sam, and they go to meet Gandalf in a human village, Bree, uh, whereupon they will decide what to do next. Uh, and when they get to Bree, Gandalf doesn't show up. And uh, this is where we meet Aragorn, who is... Uh, A friend of Gandalf, a human man, a ranger, who is going to spirit them away from danger as they are being actively hunted now by the agents of the Dark Lord himself, the Ringwraiths, all nine of them. And as Aragorn is trying to get Frodo to safety, they are attacked. They are set upon by the Ringwraiths. And Frodo is actually grievously wounded and stabbed by one of their uh, swords. So they do manage to, after the fact, escape intact for the most part, and they find refuge in the elven city of Rivendell. The Ringwraiths are temporarily defeated. So at Rivendell, Frodo kind of recuperates, and Gandalf does finally show up. uh, And we learn, you know, where he was. Saruman is involved, which is basically Gandalf's boss and is kind of the bigger, badder wizard Uh, in the world for now, who has turned evil and is now an ally of Sauron. So that's a problem for them as well. Things are looking grim. We don't know who we can trust. We don't know who we can turn to. So Frodo uh, volunteers at this sacred council at Rivendell where men and dwarves and elves come together to figure out, look, hey, what what can we do about this? This is a big problem. (laughs) Frodo decides like, I'm going to, I'm going to step up to the plate and I'm going to take the ring to Mordor I'm going to handle this. I'm going to destroy the ring. And so the iconic fellowship of nine companions is forged at this time. 
So they they set out on their quest. They're going to try to walk straight to Mordor to take care of this ring. And that leads them to try to cross the Misty Mountains. And they are thwarted by snow, inclement weather. And they are forced underground into Moria, which is the status of which is unknown. But it was kind of a, a great hall of the dwarves at one point. And they find out that it has been infested with orcs. The dwarves who had taken up there again have been ousted and slain. And not only that, but uh, great combat is made with a Balrog, a most terrifying creature of shadow and flame. <laughs> Truly <laughs> an iconic moment. Uh, they do manage to flee, but in the process, Gandalf valiantly sacrifices his life to buy the Fellowship time to escape. And they uh, make their way to Lothlorien, another elven haven, where the elven queen Galadriel is there. Uh, and she offers them a little bit of safe space, a little bit of counsel before sending them on their way. And it's at this point that the fellowship, the cracks are starting to show uh, because Boromir, who is a human man who's been with them this whole time and has always been kind of abrasive and hard headed as, you know, the heart of men is want to be. He does try to take the ring from Frodo. And at that point, Frodo decides like, this is too much. Everybody wants this ring. I got to be out. I got to go do this on my own. Uh, although his like main man, Sam, refuses to let that happen. He's very loyal. And so Sam does go along with him. Uh, and at this point, they're actually all being swarmed by orcs and attacked. And Bormir tries to redeem himself uh, by defending the rest of the group. And he is killed. Uh, Merry and Pippin, who are two hobbits that have been with us from the very start, uh, are kidnapped by the orcs presuming that maybe they have the ring and they are taken away uh, and they uh, manage to escape. So Mary and Pippin have been squired away by these agents of Saruman and they bust loose into the forest. And there we actually have a nice little interlude with Treebeard, who is a tree person or an Ent. Uh, and in the meantime, Aragorn, Gimli and Legolas, who are all part of the fellowship as well, Gimli being a dwarf, Legolas being an elf. Uh, they have tracked Merry and Pippin into the forest where they actually find Gandalf again in a very spooky, weird type of meeting where it turns out that Gandalf has not only survived, but has also leveled up since the last time that they met. We, uh, we continue with them along to Rohan where we learn that the, the human people in Rohan, this is like a human country, uh, are all being threatened by the looming, you know, orcish horde. Uh, so they're going to try to figure that out and save humanity. Uh, and they retreat to Helm's Deep in uh, isolation, kind of this castle keep in the mountains where they think maybe we can, we can have this last stand, we can ride this out. And uh, Frodo and Sam continue their journey alone, uh, which they're not alone for long because Gollum, who we have not seen in this movie yet, but as we know, is uh, a frenemy <laughs> to the ring, uh, has spent many years with the ring in his possession and has been stalking them all along, trying to get his, his precious ring back. Uh, so he tries to jump them and 
they uh, they actually managed to briefly, I would say, befriend him uh, and spare his life uh, for his attempt on theirs in exchange for guidance on their their trip, their path to Mordor. Uh, and Gollum, as we see, is a little bit uh, non-committal about this. <laughs> It's one of those, you know, he has a seed of good in him, but also the powers of evil. So, you know, how how is this going to play out in the long term? Will we find out? No. (laughs) 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 And and, uh, while he's uh, debating the merits of helping Frodo and Sam or helping himself to his precious the ring, we go back to Helm's Deep where the human forces are being overwhelmed uh, and they decide to take one last stand to ride out and face the enemy when Gandalf comes in at the 11th hour to save them with the, the backup, with all the horse boys uh, in a really powerful moment. And it's at this point that the film ends and there's just no way of knowing <laughs> how this story concludes. <laughs> and for all we know, Frodo and Sam are still out there today. <laughs> I feel like you were just sprinting and like you reached the end of your tether and like snapped back or something. It's like the story just takes a an abrupt conclusion. I think I covered it all though. That's like and I will say, so we're just gonna barrel directly from the I normally I feel like there's a little bit of a cutoff right here at the synopsis part where then we sort of like regroup and then we decide what we're gonna talk about. But here it's just there's no gap whatsoever because <laughs> like why does it end there? Like that's not it's a very strange place to end the movie, especially because everybody's apart now. So yeah. you're not even getting kind of the end of the fellowship, which seems like a natural ending point, right? Like sure. this, you know, this group of people united in a quest fails to remain united. And that's like, right, okay, Put a bookmark here. And in this one, they sort of do that. And then they're like, but let's keep going for like another half an hour <laughs> and just like see what happens. Yeah. Uh, and then have this whole other conflict that is like really epic in and of itself. Like that's the finale of the movie. Mm-hmm. It's a little strange to me. Yeah, I guess as a director, maybe you could have uh, settled on like a point of view character. So you could kind of bookend it with that character's arc in some way. But it just... Oh, I guess suddenly we're just watching a, a big fight with humans because it doesn't it should just wrap up on Frodo in some way, but it doesn't. Right. right. He, he just, he's not even he's not the last thing on screen. He gets like a little moment with Sam. Am I remembering that right? It really does just sort of end with this big showdown and Gandalf like riding over the hill and being there and on his you know horseback with swords and he like goes in and and runs through this whole orc army. And that's about it. Like they are routed, they are fleeing, and then like that's the movie. Right. And Gandalf says something completely out of character where he's like, and suddenly it's a voiceover, which you know they're just struggling to like wrap this thing up. And Gandalf is like, and so ends the first journey of the Lord (laughs) of the Rings or something like that. It's like, hey, studio, like give us more money maybe. It's like, talking to a hundred percent directly um so i'm like all right i guess this is a, a, a beautiful ending and it's worth noting i guess 
that there was a lot of struggle, obviously, in the production of this movie, mm-hmm. and that Bakshi asked, can I have three more months to put yeah. together the final edit? And they were like, no. So he knew that he needed the time, uh-huh. and he didn't get it. And it, I think that does show, but at least we know that. And <laughs> we're not just like, why did you choose to do this, like... I think to some degree, you know, corners were cut to get this thing out. Yeah. Yeah, that's now, fine. Something I don't know, and I don't, perhaps you know it, why did they not make the second movie? Um, I have no idea. I mean, I feel like it all just comes down to money with this sort of stuff. I guess maybe this just didn't hit the way they needed it to. There's also such a small, not a small part of the story left, but it's... It ends in a weird place where to pick it up from right there is odd. Does that add up to another two-hour movie? I don't know. I mean, the Peter Jackson thing works because it was all planned that way from the beginning. Whereas this, you know, just is kind of they're doing their best and hoping they can keep doing it. In both this case and the Rankin and Bass. So they just kind of putter out. Yeah. Like, I don't want to... We're going to do it, or at least I'm going to do it. I don't want to keep comparing this movie to the Peter Jackson trilogy. But regardless of how you feel about the Peter Jackson trilogy, they were clearly like extremely thoughtfully made. Mm-hmm. And then being planned ahead, they were split up in a way that is really perfect. Which even in this day and age of like splitting up movies into two or three when it, they don't need to be, mm-hmm. like the Hobbit movies, for example. Yeah. Uh, you know, it feels a little bit or a lot more thoughtless but those were like an example of that that being done really well and really thoughtfully and the helms deep thing like they gave helms deep the right amount of center like focus yeah so in you know in the second in the two towers it's a big conflict that's given the full breadth of the movie to play out so it's also like you get the the rising tension of the looming threat and then you get the big set piece of the battle and you know all of that and it just means a little bit more so you can spend more time with like King Theoden in Rohan so that you actually like feel invested in what's going on there mm-hmm. and uh the first movie which I think is probably my favorite of the 3 appropriately really is like about Frodo the entire time to the point that it the, the climax of that movie is like it's about Frodo's journey. So you also get like a cool kind of action set piece thing at the end where they're fighting off the orcs and like Boromir dies and all that stuff. But it ends with that like now Frodo's on his own. So it's not necessarily a happy ending. There's more to come to the story, but it's also like satisfying in and of itself because problems arose and they concluded. They weren't really solved, but like the fellowship is ended Things have changed, like circumstances are different. And now, you know, Sam and I are like looking out to the future, like to Mordor, to our next challenge, watch the next movie, whatever. And in this one, it doesn't. It's it's not that. And so I, I was telling you before we jumped on to record that I just like struggled a little bit watching this movie because it's really disjointed throughout and I do feel like it gets a little bit worse as it goes on. I don't know how much of that is just because the narrative itself is more fragmented as it goes on or what. Yeah, I think he can't quite handle this, the splitting of the fellowship and how to cut back and forth between 
those two perspectives because they're quite different in contrast, which makes them great, right? You have the the bigger battle for Mid- Middle Earth, and then you have this really like intimate, small, personal, like introspective conflict between Frodo, Sam, and Gollum, and they're just so different. It, it's I can't I can't imagine trying to like. I mean, Tolkien works it out. So I, I think you, in a way you can't break this story because he did such a good job of telling it. I, you know, I can't see this with fresh eyes, but some of the dialogue hits well. I think the way Gandalf is portrayed, it was an influence on the Peter Jackson version. Like so many little elements of this were surprisingly similar. I don't know if you found that. Like even some of the shots... Yeah, and we'll get to some of them as we go. But like right off the bat, the scene where they're heading for the Prancing Pony in like the first, I guess the beginning of the second act or whatever, as they leave the Shire for the first time and the like get off the road scene, the yeah. way they stage that with the tree, like by the road, it looks exactly the same. It's it's like the the layout of the tree where the roots are it's the same and i was like yeah, that oh perfect hobbit like four hobbit sized nook in the yeah, tree exactly. roots yeah it's exactly identical 100% and even uh at the beginning there are not everything like sometimes the shire in this looks really similar and then sometimes there are shots where gandalf and frodo are walking through the shire and it feels very weird to me and does not feel like the the jackson version but when they're in frodo's home uh, the scene where Gandalf throws the ring into the fire, like that whole layout of that setting has a similar energy to me as the Peter Jackson one, where there's not a, a perfect overlap, but it does feel like they are taking place in the same room somehow through like space and time. <laughs> and I, I do wonder how much of that is because Tolkien had like really strong aesthetic sensibilities, which I say not being that familiar, but obviously he did a lot of drawing with his work. So, you know, can it be credited to that? But also it does seem like Peter Jackson's movies did directly pull from this at times. I was surprised with Frodo as well, the kind of the sweetness of the animation. You can kind of see Elijah Wood in it a little bit. At least I could. But of course, this is kind of maybe magical thinking to some degree. But I, I again, I was just really surprised by how things lined up. So yeah, for one, just to say again, like William Squire, who voiced Gandalf, I think nails it. You can see he really sets the tone for like what you can do with the energy and the authority of Gandalf, but not the the sweetness and the friendship, which like Peter Jackson plays to that side of it. Yeah. Um, so much more. Or he, he brings that to it, actually. Like there's something I want to talk about as we go through this. So like Tolkien is, you know, he's maybe in his 50s or something around this time. So he just grew up with in an extremely conservative, like Catholic Britain. So class structure and things like this, like the coldness of separation of, I don't know, like clerical figures and like lords and like the breakdown, the classic breakdown of fantasy tropes. I think he, to some degree, like believes that is true. Like it, it, that's part of the world at the time. And now like you, you can't think of things that way. Like there isn't like a 
you're not born into a social class. Like that's like an illusion of the past, but it is there in this book. Like the Sam of the book is he's not a servant because servants are evil. Like slavery is evil in Lord of the Rings, but he is Bilbo or, and Frodo are like a class above Sam always. So the friendship emerges, but it wasn't there right off the bat. It's like part of their growth throughout, which is, I, j- I just think that's like an interesting, it's just interesting to me the way when you adapt, it's like, you must be like very thoughtful with how you adapt because you can't just take everything. So in a way, there's kind of like this ghost of class structure in Lord of the Rings and all fantasy, but you can't do that anymore. So there's kind of this missing empty core to the way things break down in some way. And I think it's come up when we talk about the hero's journey, because that's a class story as well. It's like, I'm entitled to this position. I'm entitled to be your king. This is my journey. So like, either help me or get out of the way. And that always like feels wrong, you know? Um, So this is kind of like, the book where a lot of that comes from. There's like a glass shattering moment I think you have if you care about this kind of thing when you realize that. And it's the same thing as like the Lord of the Rings like objectively has very racist overtones if you mm. actually think about it. Yeah. And the thing is like sometimes people get really upset by stuff like hearing stuff like that. And I'm like, it doesn't mean you have to like hate it and throw it in the trash. It's just like that is what that is. Like there are all these like little ideals we have like squirreled away in our stories where like the bad people are like savage and dark Mm-hmm. You know, and then the good people are always like really white and like perfect and pure and whatever. And it's like, it just is what it is. And like, the important thing is to just be aware of that and move on. Yeah. Uh, and like, try to be better. But it, it, I mean, so it just is that. And it's the same thing, like, any fantasy stuff has that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it does have a weird, like, something I would not include if I was writing a story is kind of that devotion to authority to like this kingly authority i mean the character of aragorn is this whole thing with that like the divine right of kings is kind of something that is in this that is maybe like a distasteful and weird concept irl Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the real human space now uh but it's it's something that people romanticized for a long time still do today i'm sure to some degree So it's in there and it's just like one of those weird things once you sort of, I don't know, have formulated some opinions about that (laughs) as you get older. Like, I wouldn't change any of this, you know, for the world, but it's just something that you see and you're kind of like, huh. Yeah, it's it fits like this story just sits right on that line of. It's modern enough, like it, it can be a 21st century story, but it also has this like flavor of antiquity from another time that is very endearing, but also like problematic. But it, you know, it's like retains that authenticity of like an old Oxford British man who's got like good ideas, but also part of his world is built on bad ideas. And that's in there. It's just part of him. It's like the invisible structure. Like he can't even, he might not even see it. And, but we can take what he's given us and update it because there there is growth there still is a message and like a Tolkien quote that's like 
the little wheel turns the system or something. He's got like a thing, which is to say like these smaller figures, the people we step over sometimes will make the biggest changes, which is like what we want to believe in the world. Like we want to think our vote matters and all these things. And I think he's also saying that. So it, it does sit in both of those places, which, um, you know, makes it work and nothing after was as um, like class-based probably as this and nothing before maybe was as forward thinking. So I don't know. I think maybe it's just like the perfect time and place for this story to be kind of timeless. Yeah. Revolutionary in a lot of aspects and also like very classic mm-hmm. at the same time. Yeah. That's yeah, a good, uh, it's a good recipe for conversation, I guess. I mean, that's part of the fun of watching this stuff is talking about it. There's just so many good, I could just, go off on all the Tolkien lines. Like he's just got, for somebody who's so flowery with language, his best lines are just so simple. Like I love the early on, we're just getting started folks. Like the, I wish it didn't happen in my time. Like I've always loved that line. And clearly it's kind of like a reference to war, like being drafted and stuff, but also in pandemic era, it feels like that too. Like I feel bad that I wish this wasn't going on in a way, you know, it's like, does that mean I want it to have happened to somebody else? Like it's a complicated thought. There's so many lines in this that are complicated thoughts of characters trying to figure out what it means to like live through a hardship that they don't feel that they deserve. You know, life was so good for Frodo until this came upon him. And I guess I got to be the hero. And it's like, you, well, yeah, you do. Are you complaining? No, I just wish it wasn't me. Uh, okay. You know, it's just, it it can feel like a relatable type of conversation you could have. A hundred percent. And like, I just, I feel like maybe this is cheesy, but like, I absolutely think about that line when I'm feeling like really miserable about stuff. Yeah. Usually I think about that about climate change where it's like this huge fucking problem for our generation and like I genuinely don't know what we're all going to do about it. Mm-hmm. Hopefully something. But I think about that and I'm like, this just sucks. Like when something like that happens and like it is comforting advice, not only just comforting advice that Gandalf is like, or like Tolkien through Gandalf is kind of like, yeah, no, I see you. Like I see what you're feeling and that's like real. Yeah. <laughs> I validate this. But also that, you know, it, it is just like the true answer is all you can do is basically the best that you can. Like this is just what it is to be alive, you know? Like, so just handle it. <laughs> and uh, that, I don't know, it is very comforting to me. So I, I got a, a big question. You want the big question now or you want it like more towards the end? Pass. Pass no, till I, later? Yeah, hit me with it now just because now I'm super curious. <laughs> yeah, I guess you're kind of stuck with it now. It's <laughs> like, wait, no, tell me. Okay, so... Gandalf says shadow like a million times in this story. What what does shadow mean in Lord of the Rings? Middle Earth, the shadow over the land or like the shadow is watching like it's creeping upon us or there's all these uses of it. Is he talking? What do you think he's talking about? Do you know what he's talking about and you're like No, I'm not trying not to like, testing set me. You up I'm just curious. Yeah. <laughs> no. No, no, I didn't mean that, but I was just wondering like do you have like a like an idea or a suspicion yourself? I'm just curious, but I I do. Okay, yeah, no, I do also in it. I think it came to me more. I've had the question because it's the way he says the word is like feels so weighty, but in different ways. 
But it came to me more when um, we get the Galadriel scene that I mentioned earlier, and she's the light, and how it's this idea that like both the shadow and light can be a problem. It depends how you, you know, address power or like how you approach like the temptation of power. So I think shadow can mean a bunch of different things. Like it seems dark Mm -hmm. and dangerous at first and unknown and mysterious, which is just scary right off the bat, especially if you're naive and innocent or like, you know, you don't have a lot of agency, like a small hobbit. So it just seems like danger in general, but I feel like it changes a little more as it goes where you realize that light can also be bad. So if you were thinking shadow is just naturally bad, you don't understand the natural world or something. Um, Yeah. And like, well... I don't remember if they say if he says this in this version of the movie, but in the book and in the like the Peter Jackson Fellowship of the Ring, when Gandalf is fighting the Balrog or confronting the Balrog in Moria, he tells it to go back to the shadow. Yeah, which I love, and that was the first thing I, I thought of when you said that. But the other uses are like talking about uh, the growing, you know, evil of Mordor being this shadow across the land. Uh, I think it is in a lot of ways, sort of just his way of identifying evil, uh, you know, or like evil forces or negative forces. But I like the characterization of shadow because to me, it suggests a couple of things. And one of them is like that oppressive feeling that you get when something in the world is really bad, especially when it's something that you can't, do anything about and like i have to imagine that's probably what it felt like uh during a global international conflict Mm -hmm. to have this drain that's just coloring every single second of every day you all know that this terrible thing is going on that's affecting all of your lives in ways that you can't control but so you can't touch it but it's affecting you Mm -hmm. in a very dark way like that to me is a really like a shadow is a beautiful way to suggest that, but also like a hopeful way of talking about it in that shadows are very fragile. I mean, they can't physically oppress a space and they can be driven back by the opposite force. And yeah, you're right. I mean, like light can be also a bad thing and it can be an oppressive thing. And it's not something that really does come up a lot that I recall or have familiarity with in Lord of the Rings. But I like the contention of that, those two things. Yeah, so it, I, I just like the setup of that word. I mean, it's just like the word sounds good. Sometimes I get uh, weirded out by fantasy language. Like it all doesn't work well for me. But for some reason, Tolkien language really does. Because I think he just pulls out the right amount of familiar words where it's not off-putting if you're not in love with, you know, made-up terminology. Like I like that shadow means so much and it's it's a more important world word than the names of like the villains in the story in a way i think which um i think it just kind of resonates on a a more accessible level which i i I guess i just appreciate that sort of thing you gotta have poets writing your fantasy stuff yeah yeah exactly. (laughs) otherwise i mean i totally get it because i find a lot of like fantasy or even sci-fi language sometimes to be just like too cheesy Because it just feels like they sat down and they were like, this culture will have this kind of like characterization to their made up words. And I made up like a hundred words or whatever that I'll sprinkle throughout the text. Whereas like Tolkien was like, uh, like roll up my sleeves, like push up my glasses, like I am going to write this language. (laughs) 
hello. So every elf name feels elven. And not only that, but like they're legitimately beautiful. Like I just think all of the words, like all of the names that Tolkien comes up with are perfect. Like they're just perfect for what they are. Like how is Baggins anything but a hobbit name? Like it's just exactly perfect for that. Like Mm -hmm. what? Bilbo Baggins? perfect and like it's like that's not an elf name it's not an orc name like that is a hobbit name and it feels like it couldn't possibly be anything else no yeah that's just an ineffable quality to how he comes up with that stuff yeah i mean everything's everything has a backstory right even his like love and study of language like the texture of all the words just has a logical place in this universe Um, So you don't even have to question it. So it's like it can be invisible if you want. Like it doesn't get in the way of the story to hear these names at all. They just sound right. And you can focus on the stuff that's important, which is, I mean, it's just a character driven story. Like I, I feel so much more at peace talking about this because the characters just are so much more compelling and speak to important things that I want to talk about. And that just like puts me at ease. So I think when I get frustrated with the movie, it's like, why didn't you let this character represent this a little more so we could talk about it? Like you kind of feel like you're held back. I guess that's why, you know, that's why fan fiction exists and stuff. It's like people pushing characters (laughs) into a space so they can relate better. But if you don't write fan fiction like me, then you just get annoyed with things. So I think you know what to do. I think I definitely do. To start writing (laughs) fan fiction. Problem solved. Um, There's also like a good bit of wit in all of this. Like even in this version, again, I'm just maybe hearing the Peter Jackson version, but at Bilbo's going away party where he's like calling out everybody and it's like proud feet and everybody's like shouting back. And then just the, I regret to announce this is the end. Goodbye now. I am leaving. Like it's just rude and funny. Yeah. (laughs) So It's just important that these lines are there in this story every once in a while (laughs) yeah it just says so much about bilbo he's like barely in this movie yeah and that's like this dude is like weird and funny and like doesn't really take to like take himself too seriously Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah you get he's in it for five seconds and you're like nice like i kind of every there's a part of all of us that wants to be that when we're like old and retiring and we want to just be like Bye, everyone, in like a very mysterious, like pranky way. The the story does the great thing of make Bilbo's there, but it's not just like a shout out to the story before. It's like the echo of Bilbo's actions is very important, right? Because he had pity and he showed mercy to Gollum, which is not relevant to this version. But if if the whole story was told, <laughs> it's the key to getting rid of the ring is what Frodo learned from Gandalf through Bilbo, right? Gandalf's like, remember, here's what Bilbo did. So keep that in mind when um, when times are tough, like pity and mercy, like don't make the wrong choice in, in a darker moment, which is, is nice. It's I think it's just important to kind of reward you for of reading The Hobbit and remembering what that character went through and having that his growth and choices like continue on, um, which I think is a bit of that like small cog turning the bigger wheel or whatever idea like you might not be able to know which wheel is is doing it but like there's there's like brave people in this story that you might not be able to identify but they've like done something important which is it's just cool to think about 
Yeah, I feel like Tolkien has this like very Catholic sensibility. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I feel weird just saying that because I don't feel like this is an inherently Catholic thing. I think it's just like the Tolkien Catholicism specifically where he has this really powerful faith in the, like small actions of good to eventually kind of tip that wheel and like lead to good triumphing or like being pervasive, which is interesting. I don't know if that's like really true in the real world, but it's this beautiful idea that like you can't help but admire that where he's like the smallest thing like actually is really important and it's in the book and it's in this fantasy story. But you also kind of get the feeling that that's like maybe how he wanted to live his life. That's like a little bit of like his philosophy personally. And it's just like, you might think, uh, oh, I need to like kill this guy or whatever because, you know, he's violent and he's crazy. And it's like for my own self-defense. And then this book is sort of him being like, you might think that and it might feel right. But you would be surprised at how doing the kinder thing or like taking the merciful path will ultimately pay you back in ways that you didn't expect. Mm -hmm. And it's almost just like sort of a, this isn't a utopian story by any means, but it's a little bit of a utopian vision, I think. That like, you know, if we all just sort of behaved in this way, that ultimately the balance would be this perfect situation where good does win. Yeah, like unfortunately we don't get a Gandalf in in our reality to like guide us. I know, it sucks. Please help. (laughs) He really is the, like, he's kind of like, I guess, the voice of the author in a way. And like most authors, the most important thing, a most important trait a character can have is literacy. Like Gandalf solves things by going off and like reading a book. <laughs> For 17 years. Yeah. <laughs> Just FYI, that's something in the Peter Jackson version that you don't really know. Mm-hmm. And it feels like uh, Gandalf is like, hey, by the way, I'll be back in two weeks, like hang tight. Yeah. <laughs> and that is not what happens. He just fully leaves for a long time. Yeah, I guess that's the that's a bit of the rocky road of how to bridge the gap between The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, which has like such a different tone. You just have like this weird back and forth with Gandalf just to to get things going, um, which is like charming and I love it now. But if you think of it and when you describe it as like a story beaten at the beginning of a story, you're like, what? Okay, this is a lot of this guy running around and nothing's really happened yet. (laughs) And that's, yeah, like Lord of the Rings as a text is not concerned with pacing. It's just not. And you're either cool with that or you're not, (laughs) I guess. Yeah, I kind of, I haven't read it in a long time, but I do kind of want to go back and feel how, some of the when the story gets ripping like as soon as the fellowship breaks up and they're like we're hunting orcs like you're kind of all in on a different level like now it's a chase movie all of a sudden it's a chase story like i i'm curious to recall if like the book has that feeling where it shifts into like a totally different gear right at that moment when the two stories split like the because they're not dragging all the hobbits with them they're following the hobbits like that group starts become, becoming way more dynamic and like they're like a fighting machine all of a sudden because they're not like pandering to and taking care of hobbits. Um, and I just love that feeling in, in uh, the beginning of Two Towers. This movie doesn't quite have that energy, but it kind of has some of the lines. Tolkien's just got a good action sensibility as well too, you know. 
I got to finish these books. I've got to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (sighs) Get hung up at that Tom Bombadil every part, every time. Uh, And it's incumbent upon me to say at this time Mm -hmm. that we have spent a lot of time talking about the story, but not the movie specifically. Okay, fair. Which is tough because I like the story a lot more than I like this movie. (laughs) This has a scene where early on, and I like this as being part of the story, Gandalf and Galadriel both get a scene like this. The do not tempt me with the ring story is Frodo tries to just pass it on to someone who is stronger. So logically it would make sense. And it's just a great reveal of their characters. In fact, it's like their most powerful moment to deny the ring. It's not that they're great magicians. It's like they have the foresight to see, here's what I would do if I had it. I would like seek good but by putting myself on that pedestal, I like I would still be I would still desire to be an idol, which is bad. So I would try to do good, but the way I would do it would be bad because the ring is inherently evil. Yeah, I like Gandalf having that scene early on. So I think, you know, Ralph Ralph B is really trying to like he's finding the right scenes because Peter Jackson hits a lot of these same beats. So we do have to recognize that. The final product may not be like totally engaging, but he does seem to know what's important to say with this story by choosing like some of those more like conversational, less action driven moments. And that's part of the reason I think the second half kind of loses you a bit because you don't have these like character based moments. You just have a lot of fighting. Yeah, it's a lot more of the action. And I, you're right, because it's really like the way that this movie is made is what I don't like and i (laughs) i'm trying to find like respectful ways to talk about some of it and like one thing that just really confuses me is bakshi's general approach to animation in these character driven close-up scenes i just don't know what how else to describe this but that the characters constantly look like they're just tripping balls like yeah like unfocused eyes (laughs) Yes, like something that is really common throughout this movie is characters completely wide-eyed, just like (laughs) bright, shining whites of their eyes and the pupil like directly centered, which is funny because that's sort of like a drawing mistake that people make when they're starting out early. Like nailing drawing a human eye is kind of hard when you're Mm -hmm. learning like how to draw these things in like a non- just representation, like iconographic way. And so you'll leave space on the tops and the bottoms of the pupil. And you don't need to do that. If you look at a human eye, you know, the lid overlaps on the top and the bottom generally. And that's why it looks very unhinged when you have people who have pupils who are smaller than that. Yeah. And Gandalf is constantly doing that when he's uh, he throws the ring in the fire and he's talking to Frodo about it. And he points at him at one point and he's like, you have the ring now. Like, this is your responsibility. And his eyes are just like, whoa, like really very frightening looking. And it's enough to be a little disturbing Mm -hmm. and other other things happen it does happen in the eyes but it's also kind of all over there's another thing that i feel like it's a very like bakshiism thing and that's um things sort of like slipping and sliding around in ways that they shouldn't and uh the bilbo speech at the beginning is a good example of that where he's just like his eyes are just like rolling all over the place (laughs) and it's while it's it's really unnerving 
And there was something I noticed in the scene you mentioned. I think it's the same one where Gandalf is saying, like, don't tempt me with the ring. But they're outside at the Shire. They're on a bridge together chatting. And Gandalf is saying something that is not that ridiculous. I don't quite recall what it was. But Frodo, he gets like a like a five second just his face shot. And he's looking at Gandalf like he's crazy. And also his expression changes like seven times in the span of this one moment. And that's just something that happens. And it just, I don't understand how that happens. And it it reads very strangely to me. And I, I haven't done a lot of research on just like people's general take on Bakshi movies. And, you know, how common this is, I guess, in his other films. But it's so unnerving to me. And it just, it, it does take me out of it a little bit of, like, latching onto a character. Because I can't actually tell what they're thinking or feeling. No. Because yeah. their faces are just so in motion mm -hmm. that it's almost like a little bit of a slow version of Don Bluth. Where we've talked about yeah. Don Bluth has, like, this theatrical staging and characters are, you know, sweeping their hands everywhere and, like, nodding and looking around. But it's very emphatic, so it's usually, like, in beat to what they're saying, and it just feels like a, a theatrical staging, like, cranked, you know, to 11. And in this one, it's almost like they just don't know how to not be constantly transitioning. Like, every single frame is a keyframe. <laughs> yes. that Yeah, that's the perfect way to, to put it. <laughs> and it's just so strange like what's going on with that uh it's just it's very unsettling there's a a moment early on where Maura and i just looked at each other and it's it's frodo has kind of said something and it zooms in on his face and his mouth is just kind of moving still like stretching and just working out and but nothing's coming out of it and you're like wow what? somebody just <laughs> Was there a line there? You you don't even know. You just get these questions. But like, yeah, too many keyframes is exactly right, which kind of like diminishes the value of any one of them, right? It's just like a, a level playing field. Like nothing is is worth looking at any more than anything else on the screen. And I think, you know, so like the staging isn't great. And I'd say just overall, like on that level, like the directing of the acting is not great. And the directing of the animation team is not great. So if like Ralph wants to be like, I was juggling all these jobs. I was going back and forth. I'm on the phone all day to the studio back there. I'm shooting in Madrid. It's like, why don't you, why don't you focus on one of them? So your movie doesn't read like a bunch of like animatronic figures that are like sh short circuiting. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess that's what you get when you're shooting it live action. Then there are scenes that aren't. And actually, like, a lot of the scenes at the beginning don't feel rotoscoped to me. And they probably do have some of that going on because it was obviously used so heavily. But that scene with Gandalf and Frodo walking together in the Shire is a great example because it just feels a little bit more like this, the staging of the composition is a lot more classically Disney in a way. We're spending a lot more, like, intimate time just on these two characters not a lot of camera movement or anything like that. And they're just walking around and talking to each other. It's so discordant. That's all I have. It's just so discordant and jarring. And if you had just chosen one of those styles, like if the whole movie was done in this style, maybe it overall would have looked better and more cohesive. And then I guess if you just filmed it all in the live action and then stylized it, like maybe that would have been 
But whatever it is, like you're being so ambitious and you're trying to basically create like a whole new type of animation, it feels like. Yeah. That it's just and you're and you're trying to cram that into Lord of the Rings like that's you really did set yourself like the Everest impossible task of filmmaking. Yeah. And it is a really uh, it's the pursuit of that final product or like the filmmaking experience. It's not like the pursuit of showing us these characters because we do get a lot of close ups and stuff, but the emotions don't really ring true. And we're not we don't like feel how they feel when Gandalf dies and it and we don't feel how they feel when poor Bill the pony dies he's he's left outside the gates as they as they enter the mines and the tentacle monster reaches for him and it like cuts away right before it grabs him and then in the background like voiceover Sam's like poor Bill so what like I mean either <laughs> use that scene or not don't just like let us know that Bill is dead like just That's you could have actually... just ignored it or dealt with it in a real way. <laughs> Which is funny because in the actual book, uh, they just sort of turn him loose. Yeah. And it's kind of implied that he's going to get murked by wolves or something, but they're all like, well, maybe he'll make it back. I don't know. And in the Peter Jackson version, Aragorn sets Bill free and he goes, he knows the way home. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and it's, I, not until I read the book was I like, oh, Bill, like, maybe die. Like, in the confidence of Aragorn in the Peter Jackson version <laughs> is so solid that I was like, yeah. Bill just went right home and was fine. <laughs> <laughs> like, I definitely thought that. So, in that universe, Bill is fine. In these two, he's definitely dead. And in that same moment, so the, I mean, the Bill thing bothers me for a personal reason, but one of the weirdest tone shifts in this movie is. They go through the doors. They've been threatened by this unseen tentacle monster. And then we get a point of view shot of the doors, symmetrical in the middle of the screen. The tentacles come in, grab them, and shut them closed. Like, that doesn't feel <laughs> It's the right. worst. That's it's not... terrible. <laughs> it's so bad. I busted out laughing when I saw that. <laughs> like, same situation. Like, it's cartoonish. He just, yeah. like, it's like, oh, the the tentacles are coming. Ah! And then just like, whoop, like just closes it like a cartoon character, like a Looney Tunes situation. Just like, oh, but not close these doors. Like, good luck in Moria, whatever. It's like, what? No. Because it doesn't, in the movie, you know, there's a cave-in and they have to, they're just trapped in there. And that feels way more scary and menacing and not just like a, a fleeting moment of sentience on the part of this tentacle creature that it like has the awareness to shut a door <laughs> like what is that about yeah it's like cartoonish in tone and it's like a little more graphical than anything in the rest of the movie has been and we kind of like talked about that with cartoon saloon stuff where things are so beautiful but they're flattened a bit which for me was leaving me a little detached and the, the way that that shot looks is not like anything else in the movie and it just jumps out so it's like did one of the animators just sneak this in it just doesn't feel like it would have been directed <laughs> that way by the the man who had made the rest of the film so yes quite quite confusing and mysterious <laughs> I do I I also kind of feel that way and this is a bit of a pivot in terms of content, but uh, Treebeard shows up at the end of this movie in Fangorn Forest, and he's a big tree boy. He's an Ent, 
And he looks like a Chuck Jones drawing to yeah, me. Yeah, exactly. And it was yeah. so distracting because nothing else in this movie looks like that. And then you have this guy that is like just ever so slightly grinchy, like ever so slightly has the little Chuck Jones kind of cheeks. Yeah. Or whatever. Like his fi- There's just something about it that I was just a little bit gobsmacked. I was like, why? Everything else in this movie leans as close to realism as it can possibly get. You know, I guess presumably to work with the the live action inclusion. And it's they didn't even have like a like an Ent costume. As far as I know, I don't think there's a shot that Treebeard no. shows up no. where he's clearly Rotosco. He's like very obviously like a cartoon character. Mm-hmm. And it is just baffling to me, especially, which I can't wait to talk more about the Balrog scene, which is by and large clearly a man in a costume with no attempts at cartoonizing or like fantasticizing him whatsoever. Did you notice that uh, Treebeard Treebeard spits out a leaf when he starts talking? A little leaf comes out of his mouth. No, but that's really good, actually. I need to go back and review. I think you just got to watch it all the way through again. I can't do that. I don't think that's going to happen, but I'll have to find some choice timestamps. For when he shows up. So amidst some of this nonsense, not to, (laughs) I mean, it's just fun to point out the oddities. So this just has me all thinking about what it means to, like we were talking earlier about the principles of animation and how they are in pursuit of like the illusion of life. But if you're an artist, you know, the illusion of life is not simply like the pursuit of realism. It's like the pursuit of like the emotional connection with the viewer, which leads to a million variations of art movements. So like the realistic pursuit of this doesn't feel real because it, it often rejects trying to simulate physics of this world. There's this un, a mind boggling moment for me. I even time stamped it. It's at one hour and 26 minutes. Legolas, Gimli and Aragorn are running in a classic like, one of those great running scenes just across, you know, Middle Earth. And Aragorn falls. He like stubs his foot and just falls. Cut to the next scene. <laughs> but he doesn't he doesn't fall in an important way. We don't zoom in. And also he falls, but he doesn't look like he's falling. Like the frame the frames of him falling don't, you know, change pace as he like his weight is shifted. It's just like it's just utterly meaningless. It's it's not anything. It's like a simulation of a fall. <laughs> yeah, it's not exactly the same. But if you watch, and I don't want to like bag on these too much, but the the Star Wars prequel movies are pretty renowned for having shoddy CGI, like CGI that doesn't hold up. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is because of the lighting and the the way that they're animated is kind of floaty. And so you can sort of look at those characters and know that they're not in the frame. Like there's a flatness to the way that they're incorporated into the footage mm-hmm. that makes them feel like it just tickles a part of your brain that you're like, that's not real. In a way that even like Jurassic Park doesn't really have in a lot of its sections because it's used so tastefully mm-hmm. at the time. And that's kind of what this does. Like everything is floaty. And that's what happens when you don't include the things that we experience visually with our eyeballs that make us register the impact of a hit or yeah. the weight of your footsteps on the ground or when I trip and I fall. <laughs> 
as I'm like running across the plane of Middle Earth. Yeah. And if you're just tracing it, it's like there's no impact. There's no weight. Mm-hmm. And you shouldn't have done it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I actually think maybe the screenwriters did a pretty good job of maybe not pacing it exactly, but picking what what was worth adding and, and what is giving you the feeling you're getting from the books. Because we got other little lines that I think are very important to what Tolkien is trying to say. Like Gandalf pointing out that before we know Soromon's a bad guy. No, actually, I think we, he's already figured it out. But he he says Soromon never paid much attention to animals, which is like doesn't really mean anything other than if you know Gandalf understands that like a harmonious world considers all elements and a character who doesn't pay attention to the natural world is going is could fall to evil because they're not seeing the whole picture they're like too egotistical so it's just kind of an off-the-cuff line but it's important and the screenwriters are like this is going in but it's paid no heed on screen really like the voice acting is good but the way the scene plays out it's just kind of like all right we got lines let's let's get going we got a new scene coming up you know this the movie kind of moves through plot more than it moves through like emotional arcs or reveals or changes in character. Yeah, I think that's, it's a weird thing, the weird push-pull, I guess, if you're adapting a work and you want to remain extremely true to it, mm-hmm. sometimes that just doesn't work. I'm puzzling over this a little bit right now because I totally agree with what you're saying. I think it includes a lot of moments that are that. Like, they clearly hit that target. It makes a lot of sense to me why They had these other past iterations of the script by different writers and they didn't like them. And they felt like this one nailed it because reading it on the page, it really does. It has like the essence of the story and the characters even. It's just that you can't just take that and put it on screen. There has to be more to it than that. Mm -hmm. And so you made a good point when you're talking about the Peter Jackson version and Gandalf is like so warm. That yeah. you really feel like we just like to chill out in front of my hobbit hole and blaze the pipe weed and like hang mm-hmm. and reminisce about old times and all of that. And even Frodo just being so happy to see him is so informative. And it just feels like this is a real relationship. These are both real characters. And if you don't include stuff like that, it starts to fall apart in terms of just like I'm connecting with this as like an audience person and I Gandalf is my favorite character and Frodo is my favorite character or what have you. And even I think some of it does come back to the fact that when we see characters' facial expressions, it's like impossible to see it as a real character. Mm. And that was maybe a strength that Disney had that this movie maybe should pay more heed to. And I know like Bakshi has fans and has made other movies that I'd like to see because, you know, I'd like to know more about this. But when Gandalf is talking about how bad the ring is, we get a reaction shot from Frodo where his eyes are just bugging out of his head and he's like, his mouth is like so open wide and it just feels so alien. It does not feel like a real expression. It's like not the illusion of life. Nope. (laughs) It's not. It's like, it's uh, the illusion of something really wild and kind of creepy looking. It's uncanny valley, I guess. Yeah. You're trying to have it both ways. So like have this be so realistic, but also be animated because you want it to be this like live action epic, but you know you can't 
So you're kind of jamming animation into the situation too, but then you're not really using the benefits of animation because you really wish that it was just live action. Yeah. And it's too bad. And I think it is even more frustrating because the hobbits are, I was talking about this last time, like there's nothing quite like the trope of the hobbit and it's a perfect, um, you know, kind of like avatar-like character for us to get into these worlds because it's one thing to be like the Aragorn or, you know, the more empowered characters or like magical characters. But to be the Hobbit, what you long for is like so relatable to just like cook dinner and have a comfortable time and like talk. And they miss their friends and they care and they have no special power. So it, it makes these fantasy worlds feel so much more real to have a totally normal character who that also struggle with, the idea of an adventure like Bilbo in it's kind of a, a well done moment. Like there's this hug between Bilbo and Frodo when they're reunited in the Elven kingdom. And Bilbo's like so frustrated because he's like pleading don't adventures ever have an end, which is like so sad to think about, like when we all long for like a good adventure and even Bilbo did. But what he's like realizing now is like, he can't get away from this ring. Like it, there is no escape from like this this thing that came into your life so you know like these characters are so great it sucks to have their eyes like spinning around all over the screen or their mouth just endlessly moving when when you're trying to like resonate with what they're saying (laughs) like i want to connect with you (laughs) yeah and surely i'm blinded somewhat by that these characters are really important to me like yeah I have so much invested emotionally in the Peter Jackson movies and just the overall story. Mm-hmm. So there is some of that. That's hard to stack up to, I guess, but it, re- it just doesn't feel like it's hitting the mark. It's just a little too much. Like the designs are great. And you mentioned earlier, like the Gandalf design is kind of like how you envision Gandalf. And it's that's true. That's like right and accurate. It's mm-hmm. a great, iconic, good wizard design. And he's even like a little bit shabby in just the right way. But when he's moving, I'm like a little bit like, what's going on here? <laughs> Stop. Well, while we're, t- while we're talking about Gandalf, do we have to go to the bridge? The bridge of... Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, we do. So, so like, if you haven't watched this movie, I mean, I earlier I was saying the, the Balrog kind of has a Godzilla type of just giant dude in a rubber costume feel. But I don't know if you, if you want to elaborate. I mean, it's I think I like when you describe things on screen so you you want to tell us what this Balrog looks like I mean it looks like a human man who's been wrapped in a fur like not even that I mean he's got like boots he's got like booties and he's got what probably was some kind of lion head that has been customized to be a little bit Balrog-y like it, it clearly has this sort of outline of a mane And then they've maybe embellished it a little bit with like a little bit more of like a piggy sort of nose. But it's also it's pretty subtle because he's in very dark silhouette primarily with some red highlights. His eyes are red and his nose is red. Uh, And he's got these just truly heinous wing crimes that are uh, (laughs) I would say that they are. If you look up um, King Ghidorah, who we talked about a while back, uh, from from the Godzilla franchise, like the old puppets, they had these sort of uh, sail wings, 
And they were kind of like triangle shaped with the points. The top point of the triangle is where it connects to the body in the back. So then it just sort of fans out. Uh, he has that, which really blows my mind, even for what is clearly a like a human made costume that has been rotoscoped into the film. Why do uh, wings sometimes like this just totally abandon any pretense of anatomy? Yeah. I don't get it. It's the same thing that you'll see feathered wings sometimes, usually in like cheap costume shops, but sometimes like in movies. I think even um, the wings in Dogma, the angel wings in the classic movie Dogma, kind of have this where it's like, why don't they look better like Bird wings don't look like that. Have you ever seen a bird wing? Like, did you make any attempt to make this anatomically correct? Because it could be a really elegant kind of style, like stylistic choice, and you just threw that in the trash. And I will say for King Ghidorah, I don't care. It looks cool. But like, he looks better with real, like, dragony wings. Yeah, you want the creative people behind these things to like take it seriously enough where they, they should be in the pursuit of that to some degree. Yeah, it just feels a little bit like um budgetless at these yeah. points. I don't I don't know. I, I it has that sensibility a little bit with the the way that this movie opens is like a painfully live action sequence mm. where all of the prologue and the backstory of how Smeagol got the ring the nine rings and Isildur and all of that stuff is it's silhouette. I, I want to say animation. It's not animation. Again, it's like a red background. It's kind of like uh, shadow play a little bit. Yeah. Right? It's, or, it's like a play off of shadow puppetry, except for all of the stuff and the, the people is real, like on right. a stage. And so it's like people running around and you can kind of see like, they have like actual like human hair and it's like clearly a set and it's so just bizarre to me. That's why I immediately knew I was in for a ride with this movie because this is just like, oh, this is an animated movie and everything I'm seeing right now is just actual people behind a transparent curtain, like yeah. choking each other and like doing all of this stuff. And sometimes even spliced randomly with like fleeting bits of animation that is like full bright animation and is totally jarring and does not work together at all. And that's, it feels a little bit like cheap theater yeah. to me here. And that's also what the Balrog feels like, where sometimes you have these moments in this movie where the, the weird animation actually looks really cool. And sometimes you have it where it looks wildly cheap. Like, how did that shot get in here? Uh, and then and just like a total blend of the two throughout and a lot of the live action stuff looks like, like, wait, you just threw a couple rocks down here and like some stalactites and we're like, this is Smeagol. Like, this is Gollum's cave. <laughs> like, no, it's not. Like, it's not evocative enough. Yeah, he doesn't live there. He doesn't feel like he lives there. He's just standing there <laughs> so you can meet him. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, this isn't a bad device to, you know, to set a story to frame a story with a little bit of prologue at the beginning, even if it's done in different style, but like then the style has to sort of feel like it's living up to the rest of the quality of the movie. Yeah. And to just have these things just indiscriminately thrown in here is so weird. And the Balrog looks so silly. He's like kind of snarling and growling and stuff, but like the mouth really doesn't move very much at all. Because again, for the most part, they're just tracing over film footage 
It's just awkward. He, there's a shot of he, him flying and like it's just like a rigid body of a man just like wah, like across the screen. But the, the wings are sort of flapping in this very rote way. And it's kind of funny because when Gandalf does show up at the end and he tells his little story because, you know, he's like, I fought the Balrog and we, we fought up and down the mountain and we ruined the mountain and all this stuff. There is... Uh, just like a painting sequence yeah, and the Balrog does look that, actually it was good that was and I did I'm pretty sure I read this on the Wikipedia page the source of all knowledge that I think that was an animated sequence at one point and at the last minute they swapped it out for this like montage because presumably the animated sequence just wasn't working <laughs> But that was good because the the Balrog looks markedly better in these still... It's just like a full textured painting. Like there's nothing cell animated about it. And just a few different shots of this conflict between Gandalf and the Balrog. And it's... That that scene is one of... is uh, Like earlier when I was saying some things are maybe best left to words. I, I love that he recaps that in it. So... I actually looked it up, like what what happens in that. So they fight on the bridge. They fall into like an infinite chasm, fighting all the way down, right? And then they fall, fall into freezing water. They're fighting on an endless stair. They're in like a tower made of like a living rock. They fight for two days on the top of like silver teen in the clouds, whatever that is. And then they're somewhere else in the midst of some other world. Like they're kind of in every environment you could ever imagine. <laughs> like the sun's shining them on another part. There's like thunder and lightning and like smoke and vapor. And it's it's just so evocative. I almost like don't want anybody to show me that. I'm glad they just stripped it out and they're like, all right, here's like a bunch of kind of fantasy art just flashing across the screen really quick. Yeah. And it's like, I don't think you could do it justice. And I say that like, even to this day, the Balrog in Fellowship of the Ring, Peter Jackson, I loved it. Like, yeah. I still love it. I had, like, crappy drawings I would do of the Balrog. So I think it was, like, in fifth grade when that movie came out. And I was, like, so obsessed because I thought that part was so awesome. Mm-hmm. And it was awesome. And then even the – you see them fighting in the second movie when Gandalf shows up again and he, ta- he tells the story. And you do see clips of that fighting. But I think they do it exactly right where they don't try to – to show all of that stuff. Yeah. You see some right. of it and it's a little bit too far. You see mm-hmm. them fall like falling down the chasm and kind of fighting. And that part doesn't quite hold up visually that well. But you see them fighting on the mountainside and like that's kind of cool. And yeah. and then it's over. And I'm like, I appreciate this little glimpse into the Balrog, but like you're right that it's you have to read something like that and know you can't. Like you can't. Yeah. Maybe now we could, you know, obviously things get better and better. And if you have the budget and the time, yeah, go for it. But if you're already embarking on like a three film epic or whatever, you got to be selective, let alone this this movie at this time with this budget. Like, maybe don't. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess they did realize that. But then there are a lot of different things where I'm like, you just you were like too early like you should don't make this right now yeah <laughs> make this movie later because you you can't and i bet it felt really good to have armies on camera and it was cool and i will say like is a clever solution to use live action to get that they have shots in this movie with like hundreds of people in it but you just can't unless you're willing to actually animate it in a in a more 
you could use the live action footage as a base and still maybe invest more time and energy into taking that and using it as a guide. It's still a lot, though. Like, you're still just biting off so much. It's clever the way, like, you see part of Gandalf's fight from the point of view of our characters, but then he comes back and, like, tells you this story, which couldn't really be told any other way because it's not it's kind of taking you away from the story we're supposed to be following but it's really fun i wonder what like tolkien's relationship with film was because it's kind of like in a real golden age like you know casablanca era of just like beautiful you know wide frame cinematography i wonder if his mind was like thinking cinematically in some way because it's always interesting the director or the writers that think kind of like cinematic storytellers because it when it's done right it works so well on screen like the the way these stories play out and I was actually going back and reading this scene and he describes exactly where the characters are standing at any given moment which is why this scene kind of lines up visually really well with the peter jackson one it's all there like you could direct anybody could direct this scene and it would kind of echo what we've seen from these like you know professional directors but uh you know that's like a new thought i'm having i'm like oh i wonder what tolkien thought of movies and if he ever like wanted to I don't know, maybe turn this stuff into a movie or write a movie. Yeah, that's a great question. Because I wouldn't have thought about it in terms of cinematic-ness. But just at being so impressed by his ability to visualize things so well. Yeah. All of it. Like, mm-hmm. I, do, I hate the idea of, like, geniuses and auteurs and all this stuff. I feel like that does so much damage to all this kind of discourse. But, like... You got to respect game when you see it. Mm-hmm. And like, I think J.R.R. Tolkien just is one. Like, he could do the languages. He could do every culture had a style and felt real and had all of this thought behind it. And then the spaces that you're in are like real places that are mapped out. And it's just like, it. he really did have like a whole world in there. Like, <laughs> and that's, I mean, I'm sure that there are other you know, authors or creators that have done similar things, Mm -hmm. but like they're not coming to mind right now. And there's just a reason why his stories have endured so much and that he does garner the respect that he does. Like, yeah, that's just not something that anybody can do. I think, like, I think a lot of, of that, um, Oh, so-and-so is like a genius, whatever. So-and-so is like an auteur. I actually think a lot of people could do some, like a lot of things. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. The ti- their time and resources, mm-hmm. but some of them, no. <laughs> and like, this is one of those things, I guess, like he's just, the, I mean, it's a one in a jillion type mind, I guess. You know, part of it's luck too. I mean, he kind of stumped, well, he, in a way, you know, stumbled into like a book deal. You know, that's always luck to some degree, right? Like Mm. there's talent, but then you got to know the people. But he also, I think, stumbled into a world that he just cared so much about, which like you don't always get. Like you can have an idea for something and even though it's yours, you might come to hate it or like find it too restricting because you just don't, I don't know, know how to manage your ideas right or whatever. But like Middle Earth just really worked for him even like you know something we haven't really talked about is i mean this story is like all dudes except for galadriel really and i uh but when he gives her not a lot of time in the story but he gives her what i think is like a super important moment because we were talking earlier about the shadow 
and like the looming shadow and like the threat of of people that wield power over us and like the impending like destruction they bring or whatever the shadow represents. And then she shifts our point of view because she's like the feminine energy. You're like, well, surely we can give her the ring, like this powerful queen and she'll do right. And then can I, can I read uh, her, her little quote? Oh, you must, you simply must. Okay. So this is the moment where um, Frodo is, is trying to give the ring to Galadriel. And she says, and now at last it comes. You will give me the ring freely. In place of the dark lord, you will set up a queen. And I shall not be dark, but beautiful and terrible as the morning and the night. Fair as the sea and the sun and the snow upon the mountain. Dreadful as the storm and the lightning. Stronger than the foundations of the earth. All shall love me and despair. Ooh, I'm getting chills. That last line. Yeah, I don't ever quite understand it. It's just such a contradiction to like all shall love me in despair that it I don't get it, but I love it. But I think I get it. Do you get it? I always interpret it as like she would be it would be like an abusive relationship is yeah, what I'm exactly. kind of imagining. <laughs> like yeah. she was she would be so magnificent and beautiful and treat you like shit and you would like know that you had nothing that you could do about it, which yeah. is scary. And what's mm-hmm. great about that is to me that's like such a interesting conception of evil that is just mentioned and you never see it. Yeah. But it that feels like a whole other universe that Tolkien was aware of. Like that's so fascinating that it wasn't just like if you give somebody the ring, they turn into Sauron and they become a bad guy and everything is dark and bad. It's like, well actually like here's this whole other thing that could happen and it's like much more twisted and specific to this character. Yeah. And it's just like, ooh, that is cool. And it does, it feels like there's a whole other world in there that we don't even get to explore. But just like glimpsing it is like, this is huge. Like this is expansive. It makes me wonder, it's like the way you're saying that, it makes me wonder is like a guy who is so well-versed in mythology and lore, like from all different parts of the world in all different times, like is he maybe thinking about how like, well, we all have the the lore and myth that is central to our culture is like so masculine, but there were times and places where they were feminine stories. And it's like, oh, is he kind of maybe giving us a glimpse of like another, another version where like the gods we knew weren't so like, they weren't, they just weren't so masculine. It's like, well, what, what happens when you give the woman power? Like you'll get a similar story. Like you'll get tragedy and comedy. And it'll all be things, bad, but it'll be, <laughs> but it'll be, Pretty. <laughs> yeah, like, right. Yeah, I mean, I guess. Yeah, like, pretty. I guess it's kind of like... No, that sounds dismissive, but I do. I'm following you, and I agree. Because it's just such a moment. Like, af- after that line, after that dialogue, then he describes how illuminated she is. Like, she's kind of blinding you to everything around because she's so bright, which is like one of those weird, like, dark light things. It's like, see, the light is bad because it covers everything else in darkness around it. And then she kind of like falls back to this slender, like shrunken, he says the word shrunken even, woman. She's like a a slender elf woman clad in simple white whose gentle voice was soft and sad. It's like, and now she's back in the story. But for a moment, you like got a glimpse of what another reality was, as you you were kind of saying. I don't know, that's, yeah, it's just so beautiful to be able to open that door for a second 
and just implies so much and then just close it again. <laughs> it's like, yeah, like that's not part of the story, but just imagine though. Yeah. It is. It's a bit of like a chastisement, I guess, to the characters for being like, oh, you just think that like good is good and evil is evil and that's it. And it's not. And I just don't know how much this bears out because as we talked about earlier, there is kind of that that class hierarchy and that divine right of kings flavor that that goes into this story. But I do like that it does seem to set a big target on power and abuse of power yeah. is really kind of the most dangerous aspect. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm assuming this is in the book. I don't know because I never read Return of the King. But at the end of the whole story in the Peter Jackson definitive <laughs> film series, when Aragorn is king again at the end, you know, and the hobbits are there, he is like, don't bow to me. Like, you guys don't. Yeah. You don't bow to me. And I think that's nice because it is a little bit concluding that the most important thing maybe is this simplicity like simplicity in your approach to life and that like the humble are really the ones who are like the most exalted <laughs> which again is like another very catholic thing yeah that is in there that if you're like really following the letter of catholicism that's really you know it's the humble people and the meek who are ultimately going to be the most important. Mm -hmm. And that's cool that it's just like, it bears that out completely. And it's very, uh, he's very clear that people in power are basically the riskiest ones. Well, mentioning the humble, I think we, we have to jump to the humblest hero of all, Sam. Samwise Gamgee. We've got to talk oh, about Sam. him a little bit. Um, so Peter Jackson, Sam is a pretty perfect version of that character. Like we talked earlier a little bit about the kind of like this idea of like the tree of the Commonwealth, the way people believed in like the fifties and forever still to this day of like the hierarchy of, you know, the estates of class, clergy, nobility, and, you know, like the common folk and whatever. And it's like, that's pulled away from these versions of the story, but like, there's still, like the idea that Sam, you can love Sam because he is, he's just the common person who has to kind of make the hardest choices because he loves Frodo so much. Like he just, like they 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 are friends, but also I think it is important. Their friendship is so strong because Frodo is just a little bit of a higher class than Sam. Like if they were at the same level, it would be a very different friendship story. And it's not really like fully addressed in the movie, but in the book, it is a lot more implied that them coming together to become friends is kind of like a beautiful thing that can't just happen in normal circumstances. And it's funny you say that because like Mary and Pippin are sort of on the same level as yeah. Frodo, mm -hmm. where one of them, at least, I don't remember if it's both of them. I guess it must be, but they're like related. They're cousins. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and then Sam is not. So when they're traveling together at the beginning, they have more of like this jovial relationship. And Sam does have like a deference and a a loyalty that is like not how I treat any of my friends. Yeah, no, it's from a different <laughs> right time, or like, family. It's I think, yeah, totally different. Yeah, he has a reverence for Frodo, which is like kind of beautiful. That Frodo doesn't have for him. Like Frodo comes to appreciate Sam on a new level. But for a long time, 
he's still just the gardener who's like kind of coming along and he appreciates that. But in a way, it's kind of like, well, yeah, you're you kind of maybe you should come anyway. Like and whereas yeah, like, like Mary and Pippin are the same social class as Frodo. So it's just different. Like they're not they're bonded. But, you know, none of them have jobs except Sam. Sam's the only one who works. And when he goes home, he he, he becomes he's the only one that if you think about it, he's the only one that actually has the last part of the hero's journey. Like he goes the whole arc. He comes back home. He gets the life that he wanted. He, and he was brave enough to take what he wanted, you know, whatever the hero's journey for the guy is. He gets the girl, he gets the kid, he gets the cool round hobbit hole. But Frodo is like a tragic story. Like he doesn't survive the, the ring in a way. Like it, the ring goes away and the world is saved, but Frodo isn't saved. Like he, he goes off with the elves. Like he doesn't get to go home. So he, he's not really the hero. If you're following like the beats, you don't get to see yeah. what it was like for him. He, he just, he doesn't conclude. Yeah. Like but, he doesn't save anything for himself, which is no. sad. I don't know. This is funny because I feel like it's a conclusive point, but it doesn't happen in this movie because this movie doesn't finish the story. But yeah, that's true. something that for some reason I was contemplating this recently and it kind of predates our podcast journey into these fantasy movies. But I was thinking about Frodo getting to the end of his journey and he gets into Mordor and at the at the 11 like at the last moment he can't do it. Like he can't throw the ring in and he's not going to. And it's like this heartbreaking moment where he's come all this way and he's right at the at the step to the lava like he's right there and he could just throw it in and he can't. And then as we know the only reason that the ring is destroyed is because Gollum has been alive this whole time and he's there and he attacks Frodo and they have this fight he bites his finger off to get the ring and falls into the lava with the ring and that's how they lose it. Yeah. Uh, but that's so freaking brilliant to me because yeah. what's so wonderful about that is that like it's just an impossible task and that's like such a nakedly honest thing to include in this mm. that even a person who is like the utmost like capable uh, in terms of goodness, I guess, and like lack of temptation to abuse the ring still can't do it. Yeah. And I think it's just like, I know it's like Catholicism, Catholicism, but I love that. And I do think it's like the big impact is is that like in that view, like we, we all are susceptible and there are just some things that we can't overcome on our own. And mm-hmm. that's why maybe it's so important to be basically trying your best um, yeah. all the time because your your small actions of goodness can be what come around to save you because we inherently are flawed in a way that like no matter how hard we try when it comes down to the wire like we are vulnerable uh and that's just like built in and it's also a beautiful thing to include in a story where like a hero's journey isn't that you might sacrifice something but at the end of the day the hero's journey is like you you overcome and you beat the bad guy and you win and everything is great or everything goes back to being normal or whatever. And to have your main character basically die at the end, but not even like he's not even dead. He's just literally sacrificed 
everything to do this thing and to only have one because of somebody else's one small act of goodness is really fascinating. That is just like not something that doesn't show up in Harry Potter, which has like a much more basic kind of rote attempt at maybe a similar thing of storytelling where it's like, you're the chosen one because of love. And it's just this cheesy sort of thing where, you know, the villain defeats himself because like you're good and you do acts of good. And it's just like, it just pales in comparison. And nothing really does approach the level of complexity there is in the culmination of Frodo's story. (laughs) And it is sad, but it's good that Sam kind of, uh, (laughs) kind of gets his because he also is very deserving of it. And there's also the whole thing about Frodo definitely not being able to have done this without Sam's kind of like giving support. That's a whole other barrel of worms. I don't know. know, It's a whole other thing. There's a lot of barrel barrels of worms to open. Like on the, you know, like the way, like you were saying with the way the story plays out and how it feels so real. It's like the, the like scary truth is that, you know, things that work out, are kind of a coincidence there is no like i mean this is a story of courage without hope like which is said a whole bunch of times and that's not proven wrong at any point like these are just people being brave and you could say they're stupid or foolish and they're on an errand that's like impossible and the truth is it is right it's like like you were saying the ring just ends up in there because of the way coincidence plays out but in a million other versions of this it doesn't and the ring stays and like darkness rules or like continues on depending like how you look at it maybe the world was already going dark and this is just the thing that like pushed it over the edge but like a book that feels good is like that one chance in a million where things worked out and i i like the yeah this story feels so good because it's so they barely do it like no no other story i don't think comes this close to just going horribly awry so many times you know, like there's so many ways it could have gone wrong, but just luck has it that it it didn't. And that's what you need to tell a story. But also maybe that's a little bit of the the like Tolkien, you know, you have to have faith that things will work out. And if they do, it's kind of like by the grace of like the gods or the God or whatever you're believing in whatever world you're in. Whatever keeps you moving on. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think this is like, Maybe also what makes this such a powerful story is that it like is close closest to being realistic for a fantasy story, if that makes sense. Because another a hero's journey thing is like it feels good, but it's not how life works pretty much ever. <laughs> what really is like what life is like a lot of the time is like a lot of struggle, and it feels like when things work out, uh, it's a little bit inscrutable. Why? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is like an emotionally believable story like on on all levels well i feel like we're saying all kinds of good stuff and then we but we kind of like jumped off the movie but i don't know if that's bad because it's there's not a lot to say about a movie that just ends abruptly which we already joked about how that happened um yeah like it's hard to talk about this movie because it, it feels like a weird artifact a lot of the time more than an actual like piece of cinema for you to sit yeah. and absorb it's just to me, I'm just sort of sitting here marveling, like, how does this exist? How did they make this? So much work went into this. It's so strange. It looks so weird. 
some of the choices are very bizarre. Well, a particular, let's point this out before you go on. There, the most bizarre choice I think is there is no eye of Sauron, right? Like, which puts everything into context, like the stakes of the story. I don't, did you even notice that? I didn't notice that. No, I didnn't notice that. (laughs) Like about two hours before we started, I was like, Wait a second. I was writing a couple notes. I'm like, I haven't wrote, written the word Sauron. <laughs> That's so interesting. And you're right. He doesn't really have a presence at all in this. No, which, which is just probably takes... not great. No, I think that's like, you know, we were talking about the, it, it, it. You kind of feel like you could be on board for a while and then it gets derailed because we kind of stop. We're still following the ring, but we're not really understanding how close they are to failing because there is no thing watching them like when you think about the eye of sauron the ever watching presence like it feels inescapable the eye of it and then like peter jackson shows it in an awesome way so you believe it in fact we've we were talking about in the animated ranking and Basque where the um smog's eyes glow like there's just something about like directional light in animation that's so powerful like that could have been amazing in this to do something with that. And it's just not there at all. Yeah. That's what it weirdly does feel kind of small. Like it just feels yeah. like whatever is happening on screen is what's happening. And it doesn't feel like there is this that shadow across the land. Mm-hmm. There's no reason for you to think that. And some of it too is I think the Nazgul are like very comical in this more than they are scary. Yeah. And there are parts where they're cool. And I actually think uh, the part where they're, chasing Frodo across the plain mm-hmm. to uh, Rivendell. He looks kind of cool in these moments, although the moment itself is weirdly flat and very strange. Uh, just the way that he looks, it's all like very like harsh silhouette and that like those bright pops of color. And it's just kind of a neat visual. Mm-hmm. But I'm just not that like, oh, this is scary. The ones in Peter Jackson's movie were a lot more like... They're coming after you, and it's scary. They're fast. They got horses. They're freaky. Like, they look like they could kill you. They have, you know, gray, like, grizzled armor, like, gauntlets and stuff like that. And uh, in this one, the first time you see one, he's just, like, hobbling around, and it looks absolutely ridiculous. Like, no holds barred. Like, Kalen's telling it like it is. It don't look good. It does not look scary. He's like shambling around and like low to the ground. And he just looks like a drunk person. Uh, and I'm just not intimidated. <laughs> and I, it just doesn't. It makes you feel like these dudes are not as much of a threat. No, I mean, maybe he's going for the the struggle of their like servitude or something like they're they're so damaged, I guess. So it's it could be interesting, but it's. It's not, yeah, you're right. It's not threatening, which is what it should be at the end of the day. Yeah, like I wish there was, I do, I agree with you. And I think it maybe it's like they're, they're not even like humans. Yeah. They're like these horrible spirits that are just like shambling around in a human body, which is a great idea, but it's just certainly not what it evokes in me when I'm watching it. And I certainly think the rotoscoping probably did not help because it was somebody, you're, eminently aware that it was somebody on a soundstage just going like like shambling around like a zombie and it's like i can see that looking at it and that's just no good it's just no good all right let's uh let's let's do a quick wrap up on the the battle of 
of Helm's Deep here. Um, so we're not going to talk about the amazingly staged and paced Peter Jackson version. We're just going to kind of like power through this. There's just a oh. lot of characters on screen and not a lot of good dialogue. This one doesn't have the Wilhelm scream in it. So No, it's got a couple wonky screams, though. I might, I'm not going to go back and pull them out of the movie, but I did, there were a couple just like that I, <laughs> I orc like, sound. Were you stabbed or did you sprain your ankle? Uh, you never know. Maybe that's what it sounds like. I've never killed a man. Now a scene that they almost get it right. It's it's one of it's a it's a great moment in the story. So you know they're fighting, things are hopeless, but then they ride out to death and glory, like that beat where the king is like come with me. And they go like, I do kind of like that. I mean, I love that beat in the story and they almost kind of pull it off or it's just a nice relief because it, it makes sense. It's the last thing you could do. And it also like brings you back out into the world. Cause otherwise we're like trapped in the back corners of Helm's Deep. So it's, you, you just kind of have to do it in a, in a way. I don't know if Ralph B could have done anything better. Because like we were saying, the movie ends in a weird point, but this is such a big moment. Like when Gandalf shows up, like you're like, yeah, they came to help and Gandalf's back and everybody's here, even though the group's still split. Like in a way, we've won. So it does make sense to end here. And like, uh, and it's a clear moment of triumph, like that ends yeah. with all of the forces of the orcs like fleeing and it's just tons of them, you know, running away. And you're like, yeah, like this is unequivocally a victory good has prevailed in this instance it's just like i will admit i mean it it feeling a little unsatisfying here at the end is probably a byproduct in some way of the movie losing me earlier so i'm already like not as invested and having a harder time sort of sticking with it to Uh that conclusion but also just the way that it leaves frodo is so kind of nothing that it doesn't feel i almost feel like and I don't know how you would have done this. I won't pretend that I have a magic solution. But it ends with Frodo and Sam being led off uh, by Gollum to what I guess would be like Shelob's cave, which is bad, but we don't get to see that play out. Um, but it's just sort of like a, well, and they're still out there and they're going. And I, it could have maybe been impactful if this had sort of like the one-two punch at the end of this movie of like a satisfying resolution for Frodo mm-hmm. and a satisfying resolution for these other characters. And it just doesn't have that. And so The Two Towers maybe gets the benefit of having an entire movie to make separate parties work. So yeah. you can be like, I care about Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas. And I also care about Frodo and Sam. And for some reason, it just doesn't bother me at all that they have these separate stories playing out and you had a whole other movie to be invested in all the characters you know there's a lot working in that movie's favor Mm -hmm. but this one it's just like i guess sam and frodo are out there kind of just like halfway through their thing oh but like good news for aragorn and you know like awesome give me that gandalf is there and then it's over and it's just kind of half done in the, the most literal sense. <laughs> yeah, they don't spark the imagination of how it could get worse. Like, there's no sense of what's next at all, other than we just yeah. know it's not over. 
It's the ending of this, of the Frodo and Sam part of this movie is just like that scene you mentioned earlier where Aragorn trips and fully falls and then it's not addressed in any way. Exactly. (laughs) That is what it is. (laughs) All right. Should we ride out of this movie to death and glory? (laughs) Yes. Gandalf. (laughs) The name of my horse is a child. (laughs) He's a great horse. Rip. Oh, well, that's all for now for part one of Lord of the Rings. Look out for part two, never. And join us next week as we are wrapping up our cult classic cell animated fantasy series with the very latest in non-cult classic, non-cell animated fantasy film, Disney's Raya and the Last Dragon. Disney, yeah, I, I've heard about those guys. I mean, we haven't done any of their movies yet, but I'm... Oh, it's really underground. Interested to start. Should be cool. All right, and uh, while you're waiting for this Disney movie, you can check out our episode archive about famous or unfamous movies and other facts about us at cartoonfeelings.com. You can tweet at us or join us on Instagram, and both of those are at Feeling Cartoons. That's true, Ira. And if you care to share any thoughts, questions, feelings whatsoever with us, you can by writing us at cartoonfeelingspodcast at gmail.com. And if you are enjoying the podcast, we would be super grateful if you would consider taking the time to leave us a review or rate us on Apple Podcasts and just share us with your uh, cartoon feeling friends. Yeah, share with uh, your fellowship. And uh, that's all for Middle Earth. I guess we'll see him next time or, or not. No, I'm sailing away to the Grey Havens. I'm out. This is the end. <laughs> You're at the end of all things. <laughs> <laughs>